0: Sam, do you know our longest recorded episode for an interview is Jack O'Holloran's? It's two hours and 45 minutes. What?
1: Dave, <laughs> hold my leopard fanny pack. Give me a microphone. We are going to make history tonight. In a world filled with movies,
0: it can be hard to choose just one to watch. What do you want to watch?
1: I don't know. What do you want to watch? I don't know. What do you want to watch? <laughs> I'm not deciding this. What do you want to watch? I asked first. Come on. What do you want to watch? No. What do you want to watch? What do you want to watch, Patrick? What do you want to watch? We're even narrowing down a genre. can be a struggle. How about we watch a drama? Too many emotions. Okay, then how about we watch an action film? Too many explosions. I know, I know. Let's watch a horror movie. Uh... Wouldn't it be easier to
0: leave things to chance?
1: Okay, talking isn't getting us anywhere. We need to figure out another way to go. Why don't we just roll some dice to figure out who gets to pick and what genre we do?
0: Whatever. Here we go.
1: Welcome to the Diecast Movie Podcast, where the movie we watch is decided by the role of a die.
0: Okay. hello everybody welcome to another episode of Diecast movie podcast today i'm doing an interview with director producer writer winner of the rondo haddon from 2017 for best article and the best leopard print outfit male category winner sam <laughs> the man Irvin. how you doing sir
1: Hey, Steve. really good to be back on the show. I'm, I'm so excited. I always have fun talking to you, so this should be
0: fun. I'm glad you're here, and for, and for those wondering why he said back on the show, Sam was nice enough to interview with us before, but as people know with technology, sometimes bad things happen, and we ended up having a corrupt um, memory card, and we lost Sam's interview, his first one, and he was gracious enough to come back and let us redo it again. And same, you know I had to put you in the male category for best use of the leopard print outfit. <laughs> there, there's one person that tops you. Who do you think tops you? And it would be obviously I the would, female.
1: I would say Julie Newmar.
0: You got that darn right. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and, and, you know, she starred in my film Oblivion, and Oblivion 2. And, we were, you know, I wasn't sure how far she would let me push her to, you know, do an homage to her Catwoman days. But she was playing a character named Miss Kitty, who ran the saloon on uh, in the town of Oblivion on a distant planet. And so, you know, she agreed to wear a cat suit and everything. And I said, instead of the usual black, let's go leopard. And she was like, yeah. <laughs> so she is a leopard cat suit in that movie. And uh, it was fantastic. She, she was incredible to work with.
0: Oh, I saw, I've watched both, both the oblivion movies. And um, for those wondering oblivion, the first one is available on Amazon prime. So if you have Amazon prime, as soon as this, as soon as this podcast is over, watch it. I mean, we're going to talk about in just a second, who else is in this movie. And then oblivion backlash oblivion Two is available for rental on Amazon for a nominal, few bucks now where you get the full story and since you brought up oblivion why don't we just move right into oblivion (laughs) okay cool and we'll
1: Well, we'll get people yeah i um i had started uh well we'll go you know we'll talk about my early career later but basically i had uh, in 1993 i had directed two movies by then And I got introduced to Charlie Band of Full Moon by my manager at that time. My manager was Venetia Stevenson, who people might remember as an actress. She was in Horror Hotel with Christopher Lee, and her dad was Robert Stevenson, who directed Mary Poppins, and her mom was Anna Lee, who did a whole ton of films and worked with Karloff, and she was the neighbor in Whatever Happened to Baby Jane, and she was in The Sound of Music. So Venetia was like, you know, major, you know, Hollywood royalty family. And, uh, but she knew Charlie Band and Charlie had seen my first film, Guilty as Charged with Rod Steiger, which was about a madman who kidnaps murderers and fries them on his own electric chair. So um, he, he had seen that and really liked it. And so we had this meeting and he started showing me uh, concept boards and paintings and drawings of the characters from this film that they were planning to do called Oblivion. And it had this incredible gallery of characters that were so really cool. And, um, they were going to be shooting it in Romania. And I just totally fell in love with the concept right away. And Peter David, who's very famous for writing a lot of, um, star Trek, novels and all kinds of comics and you know he's he's a legend in his own right um he had written this great script and had a lot of tongue-in-cheek humor which is right up my alley and it's a sci-fi western and i was like oh my god this is just going to be the coolest thing and so uh we were going to have to build the entire western town in romania when labor was very cheap over there so it it was, But, you know, for even with our modest budget, it was still going to cost quite a bit. But at that time, Charlie had a deal with Paramount Pictures, and they were financing his film. So he had a little more money than he normally does. And um, so we had a decent budget for the film, but still bringing actors over, putting them up in uh, Romania, building the western town from scratch and everything. It was going to really, you know, it was going to be very expensive. And we, I went to Charlie and I said, you know, this all these great characters and everything. It just is begging for a sequel. Why don't we shoot two of them back to back? That way, you can amortize the cost of the building the set. You can bring the actors over once instead of flying them over twice, and um, and we'll save a lot of money by doing it that way. And. And the reason I got that idea was that one of my favorite films is Richard Lester's, the three Musketeers. And he, they had shot, you know, their script for that was so long. And once they were shooting, the movie was going to turn out to be so long. They decided at some point that they would split it into two movies, the three Musketeers and then the four Musketeers that came out maybe a year later, but they shot it all at once. And and I just thought, you know, let's use that concept and uh and you know, we'll be able to have two movies at the end of the day. And so that's what we and of course Richard Lester tried to do that on, on Superman and Superman two, but it kind of um they didn't quite finish the second one and uh uh, anyway, it kind of got all kind of messed up. But the same producers, the Salkin Brothers, were producing that. I guess it wasn't Richard Lester. What am I saying? It was it was Richard, Richard Donner who yeah. ended up doing Superman one.
0: Yep, it was but, um, Richard Donner who shot most Superman. He also shot most of Superman two, or a good portion of it.
1: Yeah, a good portion of it. You're right. Um, but at any rate. That, we took that concept and it was, it was it's what allowed us to really, you know, do the town the way we wanted and not have to cut corners and it was just fantastic. And we started casting the film while we were still in America and I, you know, if you look at some of my earlier films and stuff, you know, I love having iconic faces and as many roles as possible. And... So I went to town. I was like, you know, okay, there's this great character, Miss Kitty, who's a feline alien running the saloon. You know, let's go after Julie Newmar. And lo and behold, she said yes. And there's the the town drunk um, who, who we ended up casting, George Takei from Star Trek. And then The Undertaker. We got Carl Strykin, who is the giant on Twin Peaks and lurch in the Adams Family movies. And, you know, was just, he was born to play the role of the Undertaker, gone. And uh, and then I had worked with Isaac Hayes in both of the earlier films I had done. So I asked Isaac if he'd come and be a bartender in the cantina scenes. And uh, we had, you know, just on and on. Oh, you know, um, Meg Foster, playing a cyborg deputy. I mean, her eyes alone. <laughs> she was born to play a cyborg. I'm telling you, you know, those eyes, those crystal blue eyes are just in piercing and, and they're just they they look like uh, you know, an otherworldly and it was fantastic. And she was brilliant in that part. And um and then in part uh so at any rate, um by the way, on the scripts we got peter david to quickly write the second script and he did an amazing job and in the second part we introduce a new character of a bounty hunter Sweeney, and we end up casting maxwell caulfield in that role but he's he's the only actor of the group that only appears in part two and uh but at any rate it was just it was so so much fun and um we started, we, you know, when you shoot, we were shooting it like one big movie. So we would shoot it just set by set. If we were in the interior of the saloon, we'd shoot all the interior of the saloon scenes for both movies and then move on to the next set. And in most cases, we were able to do it that way. When we were outside on the, the main drag of Oblivion, We did have a little bit of availability problems because Isaac Hayes could only come for, you know, a a certain period of time. He had other commitments and a couple of other actors, you know, were coming and going kind of thing. So (laughs) uh, when we started shooting in the fall, it was very hot. And so we did as many scenes as we could on the street. But we had to save a few scenes because of actor availability for later toward the end of the shoot. But by the time we got there, uh, it was uh, snowing. <laughs> <laughs> so, in order to match the scenes that were already shot, we had to shovel all the snow away and uh, hair dryers. You know, getting the icicles off the the window panes, and uh, you know, it was it was crazy. And you know, people their breath you can see their breath. So. You, you might notice a few continuity, things like that, if you're really paying close attention. Um, but, you know, that's just typical filmmaking. You know, you always have these obstacles that you have to overcome. But, you know, we had a blast. There was, Oh, there's another one. When they go in, in part two, they go into this cave, and the main character, played by Richard Joseph Paul and uh, Maxwell Caulfield as his bounty hunter, there's this I think it's an explosion or something, but it kind of rocks the place almost like an earthquake and the, the tremors make them fall into this water Yep. and the water inside the cave. And this creature is supposed to grab them from down in the water. And, and we had designed this, you know, tentacles and all this crazy stuff and it it was being constructed at, Full moon in you know California, and all of that had been shipped over, but somehow it had gotten caught up in customs and didn't make it there in time. And we had to shoot this scene. We you know so I just said, boys, you know I know it's it's going to sound like you know I'm Ed Wood and (laughs) and you know that scene where Lugosi is like you know trying to make this this creature you know look alive I said you don't have to hold anything you just have to pretend that you're being grabbed from below by something that we don't even see so <laughs> they looked at me like okay um but they did it and it was fantastic and and they really made it And you know somehow we made it you know made it work on you know without any creature there at all and the other problem about that water was that the first day we started shooting, the water was so cold. This cave was just built with chicken wire and, you know, paper mache out behind one of the the storefronts of this, you know, the facades of the um, of the little town, you know, some of which had interiors, but most of many of which just were is just a facade and that was it. And so it was Freezing because it was toward the end of the shoot, and the water was so freaking cold. When they fell in, they were literally blue, and they were going to have you know hypothermia if they didn't get out of the water. You know, in like ten seconds. So we got a tiny bit of footage of them falling in, but they couldn't do much more after that. And we told the the you know the the production manager, you've got to heat the water. You know, this is just crazy. We can't have actors in there. So. Uh, we went on to shoot other things and they figured out how they were going to heat the water. We come back the next day and the, and now the water is too hot. <laughs> <laughs> so they get in and they're like, we can't be in here for more than a minute. We're going to, you know, we're, they're turning red. They're, you know, going to, going to faint from, from the heat. so, Anyway, it was, it was a trial, um, but we finally got through it. But again, for continuity, if you look at the scene and you're looking for it, you know, some of the shots, they're blue from being too cold and other shots, they're totally beat red from being too hot. <laughs> but anyway, we, we managed to get the scenes and uh, it, was, it, was, it was fun. I mean, in retrospect, at the time we were like, uh, <laughs> could anything else go wrong?
0: Which are words you never want to say at the time because as soon as you, as soon as you say it, it gets worse. You know, it's it's, it's the kiss of death. Yeah,
1: yeah, exactly. One other funny thing that happened, um, you know, Carl Stryken, who played Gaunt and the Giant in and Twin Peaks and our Lurch and the Addis family, he's quite tall. I mean, he's almost seven feet. And so he, you know, they were asking us, you know, how do we accommodate him? We'll why don't we build a, a, a custom bed for him? And I'm like, okay, sure. And so we sent over his hide and everything. And then when we get there, um, I, I, you know, I guess I was down by the front desk when Carl came in from the airport or whatever. And I said, I'm you know, let me accompany you to your room and make sure they've got everything to, you know, specification. So we go in and they have this custom bed that is about 10 feet long, but maybe two and a half, three feet wide. <laughs> he, he, laid down, he laid down on it, and his shoulders were like hanging off both sides. And, you know, there's all this room <laughs> above his head and below his feet. And I don't know what happened, but something with the measurements got off. And I, Who knows what happened, but that was not going to work. So he said, "Don't worry, just give, you know, have them give me a king size bed, and I'll sleep
0: diagonally."
1: And that's what he ended up doing. But I, uh, I just will never forget the look of that bed. It was hilarious—a
0: <laughs> ten feet long, two foot, or three foot wide bed. I mean, it's just kind of like it's. You got to think when they're making it, like, they're they what does this guy look like? You know, because he had to be. You know, I guess yeah. I guess they're thinking he'd sleep on his side, which would be his only way to do it. <laughs>
1: yeah, on his side. Yeah. I think they were thinking of a coffin, you know, <laughs> like he could squeeze in there. <laughs> I don't well,
0: know. He did play the Undertaker, so I guess I guess they got That's the role right. mixed up with the person and say, oh, they, they mean a coffin yeah. bed, literally. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but I, I watched both of so, these again recently, and both of these films are fun sci-fi. They got, they have the humor that you bring to movies that Peter David, I know from reading his works prior, you know, and it, the, the, the two of you would seem like a good match. I'm sure, I'm sure that there was probably some things that you didn't use. And then like, all writers are probably like, oh, how come he didn't do this or that? Or why are they saying this line a little bit differently? I mean, you, you everybody has their different creative prospects. or, or
1: Yeah. You know, things. Well, we did have, I mean, they, you know, I did add a few inside jokes. And I don't think Peter David was thrilled about that when it was happening. Um, but I think as the years have gone on, so many fans love those lines that I think he's warmed up to it. But, uh, you know, that's, that writers are married to their material. I mean, they, that just, that kind of comes with the territory. And so I understood that. But I wanted, you know, I wanted to make fun of the fact that we had George Takei from Star Trek. so. When he comes out of the bar at at one point, I gave him a bottle of Jim Beam, and we had him say "Jim Beam me up," and he takes a big swig from the the last swig of the bottle or whatever. And then the, at another point, he does the the uh, the Star Trek hand gesture of live long and prosper or whatever it is. And uh, you know, we just we threw in those little things, and the actors you know, we're delighted to kind of do a little homage to what they're most famous for. And with Miss Kitty, with Julie Newmar, we had her say perfect the way she would say perfect on Batman and, you know, things like that. And so, you know, we, it was, it was tongue in cheek all the way through anyway. And Peter David had put a lot of humor in it. And so I just felt like, you know, this, this, this would be fun, and so we did, and we took a chance, and people seemed to really love it. We had we had midnight shows of this. I convinced Charlie that <clears throat> you know what if this could be the new Rocky Horror Picture Show, you know, let's try let's let's do thirty five millimeter prints and let's try some midnight shows here in Los Angeles, and we did. And I marketed them like crazy, and I got uh, George Takei, Julie Newmar, and Carl Striken to come and appear. And we took out ads in different local newspapers and magazines and and we sold out the first you know, the first two or three weekends at the Sunset Five in West Hollywood were sold out and it was fantastic. But Charlie just didn't have really kind of any kind of theatrical distribution thing kind of set up, and so it just, it never really took off in that way, and did go direct to video, which is really what it was intended for in the first place, but the advantage to that, for me as a director, was to be able to sit in a theater and listen to people laughing and what they were reacting to, which, you know, you never get that feedback when it's just a direct to video, so it was so much fun, because audiences just ate it up. And they loved all those homage lines, you know, to, to Star Trek and whatever. They just, they, you know, they just howled at those. So I felt like, you know, we really did have a crowd pleaser. And it, it, it's too bad that it doesn't get to be seen in crowds more often. Because, you know, a comedy can really come to life even more when you have that kind of audience reaction around you. And it becomes very infectious.
0: I love Julie Newmar when she was in her fight scenes where she would always be doing the claws like a cat. And, you know, and, um, she ran, she ran, of course, the saloon and the um, brothel for those wondering. And there was one time there was a patron in the second movie, um, who was being a little handsy with one of the ladies and she both times just demolished him. I mean, you know, it, it, it was just, (laughs) the first one was very subtly and, methodically and assertively. And the second time when he laid hands on the one, that was when he was being more verbal or was going to do something she didn't want to do. And the second time when he actually um, laid hands on her, she just literally took him down the stairs. I mean, and it was just, but she clawed him up. I mean, everything. And uh, it was, it was just, it was just amazing how to see her in, you know, so, so all of those all of us that loved there was Catwoman, it was like this would be Catwoman years later, still a, a, a tough person who's going to not take any crap, but yet she did it in a charming exactly. way when she when she had to. I mean, it was just
1: <laughs> exactly. And we had um, some of the uh, extras for prostitutes. I wanted to have diversity, and there was this incredibly beautiful. Um, Black woman. I was going to say African American, but she was an American. She was. She was. I guess born in Romania, but um, she was so African Romanian. I don't know what the proper way of describing her would be, but uh, she um, I had seen her at you know casting sessions and things like that for for locals, and oh my god, she was just so beautiful. And I'm a huge fan and collector of Josephine Baker, the great, you know. Um, dancer and singer who was an American who went to Paris and became huge in the 1920s and thirties. And, and she was famous for wearing a banana skirt. And, um, so I said, you know, let's, let's, uh, cast this woman as one of the prostitutes, but let's dress her in a banana skirt. So they made a banana skirt for her and everything And I was so thrilled to have that little homage to Josephine Baker on, you know, on a distant planet, in the future, in outer space, you know, why not? (laughs) So that was fun. The other thing that I wanted to touch on is the music. Um, Because uh, Charlie did have, Charlie Band did have a little more money than normal uh, from Paramount. Uh, we could afford to get a real score and record it with an orchestral, you know, a real orchestra and everything. And I was like, oh my God. Um, and I somehow, Peter, P- Pino DiNagio's name came up because I knew Pino from the from my days of working with De Palma. I was De Palma's assistant. We'll come back and talk about that later. But, um, and Pino had done you know, these great diploma films like Carrie and Dress to Kill, et cetera. And, but Charlie knew Pino as well. Pino had done the score to one of his Empire movies, or maybe more than one, I forget. And so I was like, oh my God, if we could get Pino to do the music, it would just be incredible. And so Charlie called him up and got him to do it, and it was fantastic. Now, we didn't normally, Pino would, he lives in Rome, he would, when I worked, On the De Palma movies, Pino would come in, meet with the director, go through the film, and do the quote unquote spotting session where you sit down and decide where the cues are going to begin and end, and exactly what what has to be highlighted, et cetera, et cetera. But um, we didn't have the money to fly Pino in and do all of that, so we did it long distance, and which worked out just fine. uh, And he recorded it in. Rome and the music is incredible it's kind of I mean it's got all sorts of Pino flourishes but he was also doing a bit of an homage to Ennio Morricone with the spaghetti western kind of you know good bad and the ugly flavor here and there and it was just it was so incredibly perfect now we edited now you know when we came back from shooting we edited just part one, because that's what they were going to need to release right away. And he said, you know, Charlie said, don't don't spend time editing part two. We'll get to that down the road. You know, I want to have at least a year between the releases, so we don't need to edit part two right away. So that was just kind of on the shelf. In the meantime, Charlie had me go down to Mexico and direct uh, Magic Island for his Moonbeam label, which is a little more family-oriented fantasy film. And then I came back and we edited Magic Island and got that out. Well, when we finally got around to editing Oblivion 2, the Paramount deal had fallen through. Charlie had no money. It was, we were just like having to scrape the bottom of the barrel to get that finished. And there was no money to have Pino DiNaggio come and write a new score for part two. So Charlie was going to get his brother, um, Richard Vance, to do a synthesizer score um, which Richard does brilliantly he has his own you know garage studio and um, he had done the score for Magic Island and it was terrific And, and I love Richard and it's no reflection on him at all however I just felt like we've set the tone and the melodies of the scenes and everything in Oblivion 1 with Pino's score. I just can't imagine part two with an entirely different composer, a synthesizer score instead of um, orchestral. It's just, it wasn't going to work. And I remembered the Richard Lester uh, 3 and 4 Musketeers. They had the same problem. The first one was scored by Michelle Legrand and it was fantastic, and you get all used to the themes and everything, but then when they finally got around to editing part two, the Four Musketeers, Michelle LeBron was not available, and they ended up getting Lalo Schifrin to do the music, and Lalo is, you know, Mission Impossible, I mean, he's a fantastic composer, nothing wrong with that, but it's just wasn't the same thing it wasn't the same scenes it wasn't the same flavor at all it was very different and it always bugged me that uh, you know even though the film the two films are so you know of a they're 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 unified in every way except for the music and so i when we were editing Oblivion 2, I took Pino's score, to, the first one, and used it as temp music in all the scenes. We edited it all in and edited it really beautifully. And played it for Charlie, you know, when we played the director's cut, and which he loved, and he thought the music worked really well. And I said, well, Charlie... <laughs> can't we just repurpose and reuse Pino's score from the first one for this? Because it works brilliantly as it is. And so that's what we ended up doing. So we recycled Pino's score for part two. And we, you know, I worked with the sound editor very carefully to make sure that all the edits were smooth and that we, you know, did a really, really um, careful job with it. And there were a couple of cues from part one that we ended up not using for one reason or another that we do end up using in part two. So there are a couple moments of fresh music that you haven't heard before. So um, anyway, I was really proud of the job we were able to do and, and be able to keep that, that continuity of the music for part two.
0: Yeah, as, as the end um, listener, you know, cause obviously, you know, we don't know, we don't know all those details and stuff until now, I enjoyed both movies. I think you are able to tie in a lot of things with it, and um, it kept the humor going. You actually also had stop-motion creatures. Yes. You know, the the, the scorpions, uh, and then the um, in the second one, you had the gigantic tortoise-like creature, you know, which... Yeah. And I, I <laughs> like how you tied it earlier in the movie because um, Lash had... There was a small, like, tortoise-like creature that was making noise when she was at the cave and she picked it up and threw it out of the way. And at the end, I don't know whether it was the same one that got big or it was like the mama or the papa version or whatever. But that that thing, I always
1: always thought of it as being the mama
0: (laughs) (laughs) coming after them, you know, at at the end when they were there and it was just like, Oh, I remember you, you did something bad to one of my children and I'm going to get you. (laughs) It, it, yeah. it, it's like the movie we No, we, we never had so saw. much
1: fun with that. And the, the stop motion stuff, especially this giant scorpions in part one and everything. I mean, that was, you know, me living my Ray Harryhausen childhood over again. And it was so much fun to be able to do those sequences. And nowadays, you know, stop motion is pretty rare anymore. I mean, it, it, everything's gone digital. So this was, you know, kind of a last gasp at, uh, and having fun with that and oh man it was just fantastic and Joe Grossberg was the main guy spearheading all of the stop-motion stuff and just brilliant he's gone on to do you know major films and stuff in the digital world now but um you know it was it was a dream come true in every way there was so many things about that film that just were you know once-in-a-lifetime experiences
0: and like I was telling listeners, I mean, if you want to have a fun Saturday matinee experience, this is a great double feature. It's just watch them both. You know, in between, go get yourself a refill in your bowl of popcorn, whatever drink you want, and then just enjoy the second film. And it's it's especially if you know the references. Like if you're a Star Trek fan, a Batman TV show yeah. fan, um, it's it's gonna even be more layered and with those with the the humor that you'll get. But even I think even if you've That's never right. seen those shows, you're going to enjoy it still. So I don't think you have to have seen. Yeah, them. I like,
1: think you. Exactly. And and by the way, I have um, cameo in both of them. I in part one, I'm in the stocks in the very beginning during the opening title sequence. On the main street, they have those stocks. You know where your head, the wooden thing where your head is in a hole, and your hands are in two more holes, and and obviously, I'm some sort of, you know, bandit or bad guy that, that has been, uh, you know, put put there by the sheriff. And um, so that's, you know, just very brief, not much of anything. But then in part two, I uh, come into this cantina or bar, and there's a, Isaac Hayes is behind the bar, and I, I pull out a cigar, and I'm about to light it up. And Isaac Hayes points to a sign that says no smoking. And I'm like this badass cowboy. And I'm like, yeah, as if. And so my sidekick, you know, bring, pulls out the lighter and I light up that cigar. And then, you know, taking the first drag. And then all of a sudden, bam, I get shot in the back. And we don't know who has pulled the trigger until the camera cuts to Lash played by Musetta Vander and she blows smoke off the end of the barrel of the gun and says those things will kill you and, <laughs> and I fall down on the table dead and it's her you know and this is the moment that we find out that she has bought the bar and now she's running it her way and it cuts back to Isaac Hayes and you take a piece of chalk and adds a slash to this whole row of uh of, you know, obviously I'm not the first guy that's been shot who's lit up a cigar, you know, and I'm, not, I'm probably, you know, 25 or whatever. <laughs> anyway, it was just a really, really fun moment, and and a chance for me to have a squib go off on my back, which was kind of scary, but uh, ultimately didn't hurt at all.
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you came in, it was like you had that um, like bandana or mask on, so people don't know, you pull it down, and then you know, you take. I think he had goggles on or something. So we see the piercing eyes. We yeah, We see goggles, the whole yeah. thing, and I was just and and yeah. and I knew that was you right away. But I'm thinking, here, are people are probably if they're watching it for the first time, like, ooh, is this going to be the new like big bad? No.
1: Yeah, the big bad villain <laughs> guy for the new movie. Yeah. <laughs> taking
0: right, out, but I don't last laugh long. <laughs> yeah, taking out within seconds of the movie starting, but yeah. <laughs> You at least had one last drag of that cigar before you went. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Now, speaking of movies, when you were growing up, what were some of the movies, like one or two of the movies, that really influenced you to want to go into this field, like in hindsight, or movies that were just like you just enjoyed tremendously?
1: Well, I, at a very, very young age, I was seeing movies all the time because my dad owned movie theaters and, and let me see just about anything. They, you know, my parents were not very strict. And I also was watching all of the universal horror films on Saturday afternoon TV, Shock Theater. And, um, and I was absolutely blown away by Frankenstein films the, the great universal classic ones and especially The Bride of Frankenstein. It was always a favorite. I probably saw that when I was four or five years old. I mean, it was just, I was just blown away by that movie. And, and I identified, oddly enough, with the creature and I never thought of him as a monster. I thought of him as this misunderstood um, being and it just, and, you know, I cried when the bride rejected him and, you know, all those kinds of things. And it was just a, God, a really seminal um, influence on what I saw movies could do. They could be scary, but also move you to tears. And, and that was um, what impressed me as a kid so much with Bride of Frankenstein. And, of course, I started collecting... Famous Monsters of land and the Aurora model kits. And, you know, I was that monster kid growing up in the late 50s and early, you know, in the 60s. And then through my father's theater, he was showing, you know, Hammer films first run. And so I was seeing all of the Hammer stuff as well, which was incredibly influential. And um, so that was really what what caught my, you know, attention at a really impressionable age. And then when I was eight years old, our family went on a summer um, cross-country road trip to California. I grew up in Asheville, North Carolina. So, you know, we drove all the way across country, you know, to do Disneyland. There wasn't a Disney World back then uh, in Florida. So if you're going to go to Disney Park, you would have to go all the way to California. And that was one of the main draws. But while we were there, my dad got a VIP tour at Warner Brothers Studios and because of his connections in the movie business. And I walked on to the set of The Great Race, directed by Blake Edwards, and it was a giant tank of water with an iceberg and fancy cars and and all of that. And there was Jack Lemmon and Natalie Wood and Tony Curtis And there was a wind machine and wave machines. And I I just, I could not, you know, the eyes just popped right out of my head. I couldn't believe all this was being created on a soundstage. I thought if they were going to shoot on an iceberg, they'd have to go up to the North Pole and wait for a storm. And, you know, I just had no idea that this stuff was created. And I... Also saw that day some Force Perspective that they did with a model of a mansion up on a hill. I also we also went and saw some of the shooting of Two on a Guillotine, the the thriller with Connie Stevens and Dean Jones and Caesar Romero, directed by William Conrad. And I watched them do a rear screen projection of this sort of chairlift sequence. And I was amazed at that, you know, that magic, that I had no idea how that was done until I, until I saw it actually in action. And then uh, William Conrad, who also was an actor, he later did the canon series and, and whatnot, but he was uh, directing this. And he saw me and offered me a, a tiny little walk-on part in the movie, but it wasn't going to shoot for a week. And my, we were supposed to be, you know, at the Grand Canyon or whatever, but on the day that they were going to shoot and my parents weren't going to change the trip or anything. So, oh, uh, we had to turn it down oh. and I've never forgiven my parents. Oh, I've never forgiven my parents for that. But, um, but he did have pictures, you know, William Conrad sat me in this little chairlift thing in front of the rear screen projection and took had the, that photographer take pictures of me. So I have you know, photographic evidence of being there. And uh, it was really, you know, it, it was just this magical day. And it was the day that I decided I wanted to be a movie director. And from then on, I just I took the eight millimeter, you know, family home movie camera out of my dad's hands and never gave it back and just started making little, you know, Dracula movies with my brother playing Dracula with a, you know, a black beach towel as a cape. And, plastic fangs that, you know, you uh, actually, the plastic fangs that I used were the ones that they gave out in the theater when at my dad's theater when they were running the double bill of Dracula, Prince of Darkness and Plague of the Zombies. They gave away to every kid who came plastic fangs and these little zombie glasses. <laughs> 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 and so, Those plastic bags immediately got put on film. And uh, and then I got, I mean, I I just, I was such a crazy kid. Um, We knew this used car dealer and he was selling a hearse. And in the back of the hearse, they had built this little cheap plywood um, coffin. But it looked like, you know, the vampire coffins, you know, just the, the little box that sort of got the, the, um, sort of diamond you know corners and stuff and I'm like oh my god I have to have that I have to have that for my movies and and so I got it from the car dealer and I kept it in my room and would pull it out when I needed to have it in the movies but when I wasn't using it it was like the coffee table and I'd lift the lid and put all my famous monster magazines in there and so I had the reputation of the weird kid at school who had a coffin in his bedroom, you know, and and uh, so I got a lot of razzing about that. But uh, yeah, I was that kid, a really really strange kid. And uh, but then I started, um, you know, got a, in my teen early teens, like literally from like thirteen or so, I started organizing um, kitty matinees at my dad's theater at like 11 o'clock in the morning and we would show horror films and in I would bring in all the hammer films, all the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman, AIP movies. And, um, you know, it would just, it would, it was just any, any movie that I wanted to see again or any movie that I hadn't seen, <laughs> I would make sure to bring it in. And, uh, but I'd also make sure that it was over in time for kids to get home to watch Shock Theater at two in the afternoon. So, you know, literally, if you lived in Asheville, North Carolina, you would see these incredible, you know, uh, calendar of horror movies on Saturday mornings and be able to go home and watch, you know, Universal Classics on, on Shock Theater right afterwards. I mean, it was it was a really special time to be a monster kid. <laughs>
0: Yeah, I, I think I think if somebody was the the you you'd bleed out monster kid blood, you know. I mean, you, you obviously have that love from an early age, from like you said, four years old, or you know, with the the Bride yeah. of Frankenstein, all the way up to now. I mean, I, don't, I, I think you know it's one of those things. Uh, I, th- I think. Oh yeah. Uh, I think people back then absolutely,
1: people- and and with with Bride Frankenstein, I mean that's still my favorite movie of all time to this very day and it's only become more meaningful to me as I've gotten older and I realized I mean I am gay and I realized when I got older how my identification with the creature was really a deep-rooted thing I mean it's all about the outsider theory that I'm sure you know, everybody listening to this has, has heard heard of before. But basically, you know, the the idea that any outsider can identify with the creature, and we've all been outsiders at one point or another. When we've been bullied, we've been, um, you know, felt inferior or whatever. And it's just it's a character that really appeals on a on a basic seminal level. And and I really realize so much that, you know, I felt like a freak of nature growing up as a closeted gay kid. And so that's why I've always identified with with the monster. And uh, and then, you know, another favorite film, when I was 17, NBC aired Frankenstein, The True Story, in two parts. And, oh man, it just packed a wall up. I mean, it just, it took all of the insider, I mean, the, the outsider theory of, the creature and to the nth degree and Michael Saracen's performance was just gut-wrenching for me. And, um, there was a lot of gay subtext in that film that spoke to me, you know, very, very loudly. And, um, I ended up by then, I was editing and publishing a fanzine called Bazaar and I put it on the cover of the third issue and, um, you know, did a whole story on that. And I, as a, high school graduation present I bamboozled my parents into sending me to London and so I could gather interviews for the fanzine and manage to you know meet Christopher Lee and Ingrid Pitt and Peter Cushing and the great director Terrence Fisher and um all all the Hammer film people but I also interviewed Jane Seymour took her to dinner and interviewed her for Frankenstein The True Story and Margaret Layton for Frankenstein The True Story and um, so you know it was it was just a magical you know a magical time for sure
0: and you didn't you just didn't interview Jane Seymour once for this project you've interviewed her <laughs> multiple times including yeah
1: three times now <laughs> I, I interviewed her for that for, for, the, for my fanzine Bazaar in 19... 70 i went to london twice it was in 74 and 75 and i actually interviewed her in 75 and then 30 years later or was it 40 years later um i interviewed her for a little shop of horrors um the editor dick Clemenson, wanted me he, he wanted to cover frankenstein the true story and he'd do a cover story on it and everything and i said well i've I'm going to have so much to talk about. I'm going to need the whole issue. And he said, you got it. So I basically commandeered the entire issue on Frankenstein, the true story, 120 pages and, uh, and interviewed Jane Seymour Moore again. And this came out in 2017 and, uh, won the Rondo award for best article of the year, which I'm so proud of. Cause it's such a labor of love on that project. And then that led to, um, me doing the extras for Shout Factory's new Frankenstein the True Story Blu-ray that came out um, right at the beginning of the pandemic last year in March of 2020. And um, so I interviewed Jane finally on camera at her home in Malibu for that project. And uh, and we're, we've gotten a bunch of Rondo nominations this year for that blu-ray for best blu-ray uh best restoration best extras and constantine masser co-produced the extras with me i interviewed jane seymour leonard White. i went to london to get leonard Whiting to play dr frankenstein and also the co-writer don bacardi and then i also did the audio commentary which is up for uh best um audio commentary or actually this year they're calling that category favorite commentator. So I'm up for that, which I'm just thrilled about. And uh, so, yeah, it's been a bit of an obsession with Frankenstein, the true story for sure.
0: <laughs> well, I mean, you, you've been nominated for, like you said, like multiple rondos and uh, for the Frankenstein, the true story. And the thing is, it's, it's such a labor of love because you and I talked before yes. about this, but you are probably number one, if not, you're in the top three of experts, uh, like historic uh, historical-wise about that movie, you know, where you know the nuance, because you put in yeah, so much I time would, and research.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, and I'm not bragging as much as just, you know, there is nobody on the planet that knows what I know about that, the making of that movie, and it's because I, I, Literally, the producer, Hunt Stromberg Jr., who um, got his dad, was, you know, a big producer at MGM, did uh, the Thin Man movies, The Women. He did Mask with Fu Manchu, with Karloff. You know, he's a great Hollywood producer. Well, his gay son, Hunt Stromberg Jr., his lifelong project, you know, Labor of Love project was Frankenstein, The True Story. His favorite film of all time is Pride of Frankenstein. He discovered Mela Normie and cast her in the first ho- horror hosting gig ever, the Vampire Show, and he created that show and produced it. That led The success of that led to him being vice president of programming for CBS, where he created shows like, oh, you know, The Monsters, and he was mm-hmm. the one that cast Lily Munster as, as uh, I mean, cast Yvonne DiCarlo as Lily Munster and put the white streaks in her hair as an homage to Bride and Frankenstein. I mean, this guy is like, you know, I, I feel like I was separated at birth or something. You know, he identifies so much with everything that Hunt Stromberg Jr. loves. And I found out that all, he, he is no longer with us, but all of his papers and files are archived at the university of Southern California in the cinematic arts library. Well, I, I, used to teach at the cinematic arts, um, division of USC. And I know the archivist there, um, Ned Constock really well. And he said, well, you know, no one's cracked these boxes open and they've been here since, you know, the eighties when he died. And I said, I want to go through every single paper of that entire collection. And so I did, I spent months. And so, you know, I found out stuff. I, there were memos and letters and everything about the making of Frankenstein the True Story that no one on the planet would know about and I interviewed um, over 20 people who are still uh, with us who worked on the crew or acted in the film and just you know I, I dug up everything about it and uh, so yeah I'm pretty much the one and only expert on that movie to be honest and uh, I've made it the sort of one man crusade to to bring back this film to, to people's attention and to rehabilitate its, its reputation and also to, to claim its place in history in the LGBTQ film world for all of the gay subtext that was purposefully put into the film by the screenwriters who were a gay, very famous gay couple, um, Christopher Isherwood and Don Bacardi, and its producer, Hunt Tromberg Jr., and its gay editor, Richard Martin, they called themselves the Lavender Hill Mob, and they were, you know, pushing the gay agenda to to sneak in as much subtext as they possibly could on this project, which has, you know, just been so much fun to uncover and, and, uh, and you know, talk to the, the to Don Bacardi, the co-writer who's still with us, and, you know, confirm that all this stuff was, was, done intentionally. So anyway, it's just been, it, 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 as you say, labor of love times 10.
0: I enjoyed watching that when it first came out. I remember you, you and I are old enough where we saw it live on TV, so to speak, you know, or first yeah. run. And I just remember, cause it, you know, it's a two day thing and, and, and then it'd been decades. until I saw it again and but there were scenes yeah. from that movie and certain parts that just stayed with me all those decades later. And when I went oh, to watch yeah. the film, it I was, was like, yep, that's exactly how I remembered it. And everything, you know, fell into place and to know that you were able to help push for that restoration, get these things done. So people can see it the way it was meant to be because they did come out with that. The, um, what was it? There was a part that that was heavily edited and that was yes. didn't, didn't what happened. No was none that,
1: you know? It after it showed twice on NBC, it showed uh, in '73 and then they reran it in '74 in its full three-hour version. I mean, it was in, it was on two nights, two hours each night. But when you take away all the commercials, it, it ends up being about three hours. And but after they ran it twice, then it kind of disappeared. And it was a hard film to you know, run on late night TV because it was just so damn long. And then um, in the later 70s, when video cassettes and stuff started to become popular with home entertainment, it wouldn't the three hour film wouldn't fit on, on one of those cassettes. Well, there was a two hour, a butchered two hour version that had been released in Europe um, to theaters. And just horrific I mean it, it's a third it's missing a third of the freaking movie well that would fit very nicely on video cassettes and so that's the version that was marketed and unfortunately you know when people were introduced to it for the first time seeing it that way they were getting a pretty horrible impression of what this movie was because it didn't really make sense in that in that version and so much of the subtleties and everything were just completely lost and it's just a disaster. And so for years, that was the one that was available. And only until it took until 2004, if you can believe it, until Universal finally released the full three hour version on DVD and people were, you know, starting to see it again. And Um, but it just you know it it lost its reputation and it really disappeared into the ether and because it was a television film it wasn't taken seriously well this was the most expensive film ever made for tv up up until 1973 and in fact its budget was you know 3.8 million was higher than many major theatrical films and Um, It was the most expensive horror film Ever made up until that time So this was not just your run-of-the-mill You know, movie of the week This was a big, lavish, epic um, Production And, um, you know, people Just sort of forgot about it It always kills me when people talk about You know, oh, the Universal Frankenstein Movies, and this always gets Kind of ignored and skipped over And um, So, you know, it's, it's Something that is I, you know, it needed, needed rehabilitating and I'm glad that, you know, I was able to do it in such a big way.
0: Well, again, I'm I'm very glad you did because, well, in that way, like Ben owns a copy of it. My son, Ben, wanted to get it and I said, oh, bye. And so he's seen it, and he's just like, this is, he just enjoyed it so much. And I was just, I was able to, that's when I rewatched it again for the first time. Cause I knew did, I didn't want to watch a two hour version of a three hour thing. And then it was just, so finally he bought the movie and, so when he bought it, he was, you know, he's, he's, he's 21 years old. So you're talking about a 20-year-old buying this movie because he had heard about it and, and enjoyed it. And um, so you are reaching the audience, you know, that group with that. It's not just people like of, that are middle-aged like ourselves, you know, saying, oh, let's go, right. let's go relive the past. Here you have somebody that's our future watching it. So it is getting to that market and it is getting out to the people so you are you are getting that reach
1: well i'm i couldn't be more thrilled to hear that because it, it really does need to be introduced to younger generations and uh so anyway it's it's it, it's very it's very fulfilling um that it is getting out there and people are recognizing it again
0: now you brought up how you went to england to do some interviews and and you said, Oh yeah. And I yeah. interviewed Christopher Lee. Now you just didn't interview Christopher. One does not just <laughs> interview Christopher Lee, but the one thing I want, I've heard, I've heard this story before. And I want to say people always give, I think Christopher Lee a hard time because they always say, well, he was kind of standoffish or this and that, but your interaction with him, I think will prove that Christopher Lee really cared about his fans because he did a lot of things for you that, yeah. the average person would never do. And it's. If, uh, if you want to go into your, the, the, your Christopher Lee story, I mean, this is a, yeah. it's a great story. And I think it really does Christopher Lee some justice because I think he gets a bad shake by some people.
1: Well, I, I couldn't agree with you more. I had started writing Christopher Lee, you know, in the late sixties, early seventies that, you know, just band letters and, um, and he would answer them and send me autographed pictures and stuff. He was just the nicest guy in the world. And for, Bazaar, for my fanzine, Bazaar number two, I um, sent out questionnaires to do interviews through the mail. And I said, you know, I, I figured I'd just send out to, you know, a few people and hopefully maybe I'll get one back and I can have one interview in my fanzine. So I sent one to Christopher Lee, one to Peter Cushing, one to Ingrid Pitt, and then all three <laughs> answered them. So I have a fanzine on the cover, you know, exclusive interviews with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Ingrid Pitt. And I mean, you know, for a little ma- a little fanzine coming out of Asheville, North Carolina, that was pretty freaking cool. So the follow I did this magazine once a year put it together during the summer, during my summer break from school. And so the following summer was when I was graduating from high school and I convinced my parents to let me go to England to try to meet these people in person and gather other interviews and everything for issue number three. So, and I would take copies of issue number two that had these interviews with Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, and Riquette. Um, to give to people, you know, this is my calling card. So, um, so I get over there in the summer of 74 and I've written to Christopher Lee to tell him that I'm coming. And he said, Oh, when you get here, you know, call me and we'll, we'll set up a lunch. And so I get there and he said, well, I'm working at Pinewood studios. Can you come to lunch out there? And I'm like, well, yeah, sure. That'd be cool. So I get out there, and we're having lunch. And you know, this is the, this is the days when there's no you know, internet or anything. I didn't know what he was doing there, and turns out he's filming Man with the Golden Gun, <laughs> the James Bond movie, in which he plays the man with the golden gun. And um, so we're having lunch. He said, "Yes, I got uh, I." I got broken for lunch earlier than the rest of the the crew because they're still shooting some other stuff. And, um, so we, I, I did a tape recorded an interview over lunch and we're, you know, dining in Pinewood's commissary, which was very fabulous. You know, when I think of a commissary, I think it's going to be just this little cafeteria. No, it was, you know, white tablecloths and uniformed waiters. It was, you know, very posh. And, so then we get done, and he goes, "Well, would you like to go see the James Bond sets? Because they're not going to be coming back for months now for another hour. So for the next hour, I get a private tour of all the James Bond sets by Christopher Lee himself, <laughs> 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 and we're go- he's taking me through his lair. The scarum his character was Scaramanga, and we're going through the lair and this little hall, this little incidental hallway that barely figures into the movie at all. It's lined with these glass cases of butterflies, like a huge butterfly collection from floor to ceiling. And I'm looking closer at the butterflies and I said, are these real butterflies? And he looked at me and he goes, um, this is a James Bond movie, not a hammer film. <laughs> and, the way he said "hammer film," his nostrils were flaring. It was like, you know, it was like the shit on the bottom of his shoe. And, and he just, it, it just cracked me up because, you know, he, he did, you know, all the Dracula movies and everything kind of under duress as we all know. And, you know, he, but that's what made him famous. And, um, but but he really, really, really wanted to play with the big boys. And to his credit, he did. He ended up, you know, he was in a James Bond movie. He was in Three and Four Musketeers. He goes on to be, you know, in Spielberg movie, 1941. He's in all of the Lord of the Rings movies with Peter Jackson and Hugo, directed by Martin Scorsese and Tim Burton movies and... You know, all these major, major A-list directors clamoring to work with him. And, and he, so he succeeded. He got what he wanted. But, of course, the irony of all of this is that all of those directors I just named, every one of them grew up on hammer films and knew of Christopher Lee because of Dracula and all of these things that he did with Hammer. And that's why they wanted to work with him because they're all monster kids like me and the rest of us. And, uh, but, you know, you just don't tell him that. Because <laughs> <laughs> he kind of looked back on on those days as, you know, eh, kind of, that he was slumming a little bit. Um, and I got a little taste of it uh, because when I was um, getting ready to direct Elvira's Haunted Hills, we offered the role of the Vincent Price sort of character in that movie, Lord of uh, uh, the castle. Um, we offered it to Christopher Lee, but he, he and his manager turned it down and the manager said that, you know, he just no longer does those types of films. And, um, and so, you know, yeah, he, he, he tried to move on and, and, and get away from all that eventually. But, um but, you know, you weren't telling me that this wasn't Dracula. It was right before me. I mean, he was just—he he, will—he will always be that to me. Well, at the then after he gave me the tour of the the sets, he said, "You know, stay, hang out, and watch us shoot the rest of the afternoon," which I did. And they shot a big dining room scene in the lair with Christopher Lee, Roger Moore, Britt Eklund, Maude Adams, and um, Christopher Lee's sidekick in the film, uh, played by Hervé Chet. <laughs> 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 Who, of course, we all know from Fantasy Island, De Plane, De Plane, but it was also the character that was sort of the basis for Minnie me in the Austin Powers movies that Tro- um, Vern Troyer played. But at any rate, at the end of the day, um, Christopher Lee offered me a ride back to London in the, the studio show for- Rolls Royce and I was certainly not going to turn that down and so I climb into the back and I'm going to sit in what the fold-down seat but and in the back seat of the car was Christopher Lee and Herve Villachez sitting side by side now Christopher Lee is five, like six three or six four at least and Herve Villachez you know is maybe half that <laughs> and so right there you have this incredible contrast to begin with. And Hervey was uh <laughs> let's say kin sheets to the wind. He was already uh, you know, pretty pretty drunk and was drinking out of a bottle and you know, it, it was uh he was he was feeling no pain, let's say. Well, we started driving back to London and then Hervey started to regale Christopher and I with all the stories about the prostitutes that he'd hired since he had come to London and going into graphic detail as to what he had done with them and using all sorts of um, slang and everything. I hope, I hope uh, he, I hope, I hope this is okay to say on your show, but he would say the word for cat. Um, Can I say that word?
0: Well, you did. Let's go for it. I mean, I had Ron Perlman one time. We, right. we, we can go for it.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, I'm, let's hope we don't offend too many people, but he would use the word pussy quite a bit, but he has a list, so he would say pussy. <laughs> and every time he would say that word, Christopher Lee started to giggle, started to laugh, started to laugh hysterically. It just got... We were both just bent over in hysterics and as soon as we would compose ourselves and he then then Hervey would say pussy again and we would just completely lose it all over again <laughs> and so it was just the most hilarious ride ever and we finally get to cadogan square where christopher lee lives they're dropping him off first and i'll just never forget he gets out of the car and we say goodbye And I'm we're pulling away and I'm looking out the back window and he is still doubled over laughing before he goes in to face his wife. And I'm sure he does not want to have to tell her why he's laughing so hard. So he's trying to compose himself, but just driving away and seeing Dracula, you know, hysterically laughing out (laughs) in front of his home. Just I'll never forget that image. It was it was just so great, so great. And, you know, it was just the most magical day. It was incredible.
0: And I think that's what people are because here you are, you're what, 17, 18 years old?
1: Yeah, yeah, just turned 18.
0: And he didn't know he you crazy. except from fan mail, and here he is taking you, which he didn't have to do at all. He's taking you all around, no, he didn't giving have you a ride, and, and that kind of stuff. I mean, and that's why I say I think a lot of people don't realize he really did care a lot about the fans, but, but he didn't care about some of his prior work. I think that's where the people get upset with because they here they want to talk, you know, they keep all this praise on about some of this stuff, but every actor, everybody, you know, some people look at it as they like to look at the stuff that they're doing now and the future. And they don't yeah. really like relishing on the past. And I think he was probably one of those types that liked to look at what he was doing now in the future and not as much about the past.
1: Yes, that was very much the way he was. He was completely opposite of Peter Cushing, who, you know, Peter Cushing was very happy to be a a big fish in a smaller pond and really appreciated that he had become a star in horror films and just had embraced that and had no problem with that. Whereas Christopher Lee, you know, saw it as a stepping stone to, you know, something bigger and, and in his mind better. And, um, so they were different in that way. They were both incredibly nice men, but, you know, Christopher Lee had a bigger ego in terms of career. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's just the way it was. I mean, I will, you know, it's just, it's just him. And I, I find it amusing and, and, uh, I love him to death, you know, but that's just, the, that's just who he was. Um, it was, it was fantastic. Now I had also, become friendly with vincent price i had written to him for years and i'd actually gone to see him in one-man shows and lectures and things that he would do in america when he would tour around i had seen him um you know maybe three times and met him and gone backstage afterwards to to chat and so um when i got to london I didn't expect him to be in London because he, you know, really lives in in Hollywood. And uh, but I wanted to interview Diana Rigg because she had just played Vincent Price's daughter in Theater of Blood and of course we all loved her as Emma Peel in the Avengers TV series and she was in she was a Bond girl in On Her Majesty's Secret Service, the only Bond girl that married James Bond and you know so I had lots of stuff I wanted to talk to her about and I was having a hard time getting her management to pay attention to me. And, uh, but I found out she was starring on, uh, in, um, Pygmalion on the West End and Pygmalion, of course being the, the play that My Fair Lady, the musical is based on. And, um, and she was playing Liza Doolittle. So I decided, well, I would love to see her in the play. I'll go see it and then hang out at the stage door and see if I can get an autograph and maybe talk her into doing an interview. So I get to the theater and it's completely sold out, but there's always somebody selling a ticket out front. So I managed to buy a ticket and it was a really good ticket. It was like right down near the front in the orchestra section. And I take my seat, and I'm waiting for the show to start. And then I hear this very familiar laugh right behind me. And I turn around, and it's Vincent Price and his new wife, Coral Brown, whom he had met on Theater of Blood. She played one of the film critics that he killed. And, by the way, Diana Rigg was the one that introduced the two of them. (laughs) And before I can open my mouth, he... Sees me and he goes Sam, what are you doing here? <laughs> <laughs> and and so I explain what I'm doing and then my goal is to interview Diana Rigg and he says, well, you're coming backstage with us after the show, and that's what happened. And so he takes me back and introduces me to her. We're all having champagne and and uh, she, you know, she can't really turn me down now. So. She agrees to do the interview and says, come back on, uh, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday when they do a matinee and an evening show. And um, she said, I hang out in my dressing room between shows and we can do it then. So that's what I did. And it was, you know, a fabulous interview. And it was just, it was just incredible. But, um, you know, to to run into Vincent Price like that, all places. It just, you know, I don't know. I feel like I had some kind of, you know, magical thing. I wish I still had (laughs) where, you know, these, these crazy things would happen. And if you can believe it, I ran into Vincent Price two other times by just sheer coincidence. And, you know, it, it just, there was something that just kept drawing us together and, um, I later tried to develop a film that he was going, that he and Coral were going to star in, and I had gotten Brian Clemens, who created and wrote the Avengers TV series and wrote Captain Kronos Vampire Hunter, and also directed that and wrote Doctor Jekyll and Sister Hyde, et cetera, et cetera. He wrote a script called Stiff, and it was a dead body comedy, and I was trying to get it going for me to direct. And then Weekend of Bernie's came out and suddenly knocked the wind out of a dead body comedy. And anyway, it all sort of fell apart. But um, I really wish that that had happened because I just, I love Vincent so much and it would have been so much fun to be able to direct him, but it, you know, it, it didn't ultimately work out.
0: And I think that, that Val, well, it's one of the things I've noticed with doing interviews of different people in the movie business, the, the vast majority of people, actually everybody I talked to, it has been extremely kind and saying things like that, and and coming on here. And um, I think a lot of the actors, directors, writers, producers, whatever, a lot of them, people forget, are just like everybody else. They just have a different job. Some of them, just yeah. like in other jobs, the people have certain egos, as you said, with different things where they won't, where they feel like, oh, I won't do that because for whatever reason. And I think it's not just because yeah. they're actors and they lost it's Some people just lose touch with other people and they already value themselves differently. And I think everybody, everybody's different in that way. And of course, some times when you are a star, people are always trying to want a piece of you want a piece of your time. And, and sometimes you get rarely um, and, and they trying to keep people in those gotcha moments. And I think people get rather, they don't want to be, two out there and they like that control. So I think, I think those are different factors that go into it.
1: And it's also the time period, you know, back then in the seventies, these actors weren't being approached that rapidly all the time by a million fans because fans, first of all, just didn't have an outlet or, or any way to really get in touch with them. You know, nowadays social media and all these other things, um, you know, they're they're being approached left, right, and center. And so I think it, it is just overwhelming at a certain point if you're famous enough where you just can't possibly answer every fan letter or email or message or whatever. And, you know, you go to, they, you know, back then they didn't really, conventions were hardly, you know, barely starting. I mean, you know, when I went to the famous monster's convention in nineteen seventy five. I think that was the second time they had done that convention and that was one of the very first of the of the fan conventions. And um so you know nowadays it's just there's there's so much more opportunities for fans to try to interact with celebrities and and I do think it becomes overwhelming for the celebrities, you know.
0: And I think that's a, and sometimes that happens when people go to a convention and they talk to you a certain celebrity and they got to remember, like they said, all the, they are really off putting or whatever, but they're human and you don't know what's going on with them in their back in their life at that time. And, um, the, yeah, so no, sometimes, sure. you, so when you have that one interaction, you can't let that be the judgment of somebody for their whole life, It, 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 it which also goes to everybody. You can, you know, you can have, you and I could have met and I could have had a bad day and, and something like that. And you would be like, Oh, that guy's a jerk, you know? but, who's to say what was going on at that particular moment in time. And I try, I try to have a tendency to give people the benefit of the doubt. Now, if they keep doing it to me, then I start to realize, okay, they are that way, you know, and that's just the way it is.
1: No, for sure. No, there's no question about it.
0: Now you, you've been a director for a long, long time, but before you were a director, there was a director that helped get you your start. So to speak, and Brian De Palma, (laughs) Yes. Well, this
1: is what happened. I um, When I started going to college, I did one more issue of, of Bazaar in the summer of 1975. Um, between my, I guess that would have been my freshman and sophomore year. And I figured I would continue doing bizarre every summer. But... Um, I kind of got sidetracked with Brian De Palma. <laughs> I, um, at, I went to the university of South Carolina and I became head of the film committee that ran the movie theater on campus there. And I was such a fan of Brian De Palma's early films, like sisters that um, was very Hitchcockian and had a score by Bernard Herman. And I just loved it. And then Phantom of the Paradise, the rock and roll version of Phantom of the Opera. And, so I decided let we, we want to have a Brian De Palma film festival at on campus and show those two films and some of his other earlier films. And I decided I would just try to get in touch with De Palma. Well, I subscribed back in those days to Hollywood Reporter and Daily Variety, and I saw in the production charts that he was prepping a film called Carrie. and they had a phone number for a casting office in in Hollywood. I called there, and they put him on the phone. You know, <laughs> this kind of stuff would never in a million years happen today. But back then, it just everybody was just much more accessible. Okay, well, it turned out that this casting session was the most famous casting session in the history of movies because it was Brian De Palma and George Lucas sitting at the same table reading every kid in town for Harry and Star Wars everybody who came in read a scene from both movies <laughs> and so during a break I, they put De Palma on the phone and I explained what I'm doing in South Carolina and would he come to appear at the festival and he said listen I live in New York I really need some stuff at my apartment if you'll give me the airfare to South Carolina then to New York and then back to LA I'll come for the Triangle airfare and I said, done. So he came out to, in 1975. Um, he came, it was late in the year, like, you know, November ish of '75. And they were in early stages of prepping Carrie at that time. <laughs> he came to the University of South Carolina. I took him to around to some film, to a film class that I attended. And he had brought a cassette. And a little cassette player of the score to Obsession that they had just finished recording. And it was a Bernard Herrmann score. The movie wouldn't come out until August of the next year. <laughs> so this is almost a year in advance. He's playing as uh, cues from Obsession. And back then, the movie was still called Deja Vu. They hadn't even changed the name to Obsession yet. And he, on the chalkboard, drew... Storyboards of the scene, and would then would play the music, and I mean it was just the most incredible thing you could ever imagine. And then on Saturday night, we had a midnight show, A Phantom of the Paradise, and we told everybody to come in costume, and that Brian De Palma would judge the best costumes. We were going to give away prizes and all of this. We sold out all three hundred seats of the the theater on campus, and everybody's there in costume. Brian judges the best one, we give the prizes, and now we're ready to start the movie, and there's no sound. The picture is fine, but there's no sound. I go running up to the projection booth, and it turns out that the sound bulb on the 16 millimeter projector had burned out, and there was no place after midnight on a Saturday to buy a new bulb. And we had to cancel the screedig and send everyone home and give them back their money. I mean, uh, it was the most embarrassing thing. And I just felt like every piece of goodwill that I had built up with Brian De Palma just got flushed down the drain. But nope, <laughs> this will tell you what Brian De Palma is really like. He has a very wicked sense of humor and he thought it was hilarious. and over the next several years, when I ended up working with him, he would love to tell that story when he would introduce me to people so that I would have to wince and cringe through the whole thing. And, uh, and he just, he relished it. And it made me memorable, and you know, so, so in a way, it was like this very bizarre, very darkly humorous, uh, you know, sort of advantage, I guess, because it made me memorable to him. Anyway, uh, the following summer, um, you know, then he goes, he, he goes off and, you know, makes Carrie, which becomes this humongous hit. Um, and Obsession comes out like a month before Carrie, you know, he had this one-two punch and that was also a hit film. And now he's like this big major, you know, bankable director. And he's now suddenly on par with, you know, his, his peers. Spielberg and Scorsese and Francis Ford Coppola because up until then De Palma's films had not really done much at the box office so now he's going to do a film called The Fury which is a big budget film at 20th Century Fox with Kirk Douglas and John Cassavetes and everything and I call him up I find out that they're going to be shooting in Chicago during the summer during my summer break between my junior and senior year and uh and I asked him, can I come up to Chicago and work on it as a production assistant or anything? And he said, sure. So I went up there and worked on the film as a production assistant. I also appear as an extra in the in the amusement park scenes. But then I also got an assignment from Cinefantastique magazine, from the editor, Fred Clark, to do a diary on, you know, an article on the whole making of the film, a journal on the making of it, which... Then allowed me, gave me access to have to request one-on-one interviews with all the big, you know, the big people on the film, from Kirk Douglas to John Cassavetes, all the way to um, the editor Paul Hirsch, who also, you know, did Star Wars, and even the the composer John Williams. I talked to over the phone, and um, so it was it was just this incredible thing, and the you know, Sinister Fantastic published all all of that stuff. I interviewed Amy Irving and, um, who was in the fury and she was, she, um, I got her to talk about a little bit about her relationship with Steven Spielberg as they were just starting out as a couple. And that was the first time that that had ever been spoken about anywhere in any interview. And that got published in the, the double star Wars issue of cinema. Fantastic. So I had this big scoop. And, uh, so anyway, um, I made, I guess I made a decent impression on De Palma at this time, (laughs) a decent enough impression. And so then as, just as I was about to graduate the following spring, I get a call and it's De Palma calling me for once. And he said um, that he had been teaching a course that spring at Sarah Lawrence college on, on screenwriting. And they had come up with a script called home movies based on a treatment that De Palma had written and the students had all collaborated on the script. And now that summer of 1978, they wanted to, Brian wanted to direct a low budget feature film based on this script. And he asked if I would want to come up and work on it. And I said, you bet I will. I'm just graduating. And so, um, I, I, Took my last exam, didn't even wait for my la- for the graduation ceremony, and I just got on a plane and went up there. And I expected to work on it in the same capacity that I worked on the Fury, as like a production assistant or just you know whatever needed to be done. And but De Palma said, "No, um, no, you're going to be the associate producer and production manager." <laughs> so he kind of threw me into the deep end to see if I could swim. And I guess I did, because then after that movie, which, by the way, starred... The whole movie starred Kirk Douglas and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon and Vincent Gardena and Garrett Graham, who played Beef in Phantom of the Paradise. I mean, it was an incredible cast. But um, after that, De Palma asked if I would stay on as his assistant, which I did. And then I worked with him on uh, Dress to Kill which reunited Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon, who had both been in home movies. So it was kind of like old home week.
0: Hey Sam, um, Sam. Yeah. Just before you get the dress to kill, I want to go back to the fury. You, you got the interview and work with, like you said, Kirk Douglas and those, what was it like working? And you got to work with him in the, in in the home movies. What was it like working and meeting with Kirk Douglas? I mean, you're talking one of the icons of cinema.
1: Yeah. And, and, Getting to work with him twice on the Fury and home movies, you know, it was just, it was just absolutely amazing. Well, the thing that I learned, I learned a, a life lesson from Kirk Douglas the very first day. He walked onto the set of the Fury and went around to each crew member and introduced himself and asked their name and what they did on the film. And Brian was like, you know, um, Kirk, we're, we're we're pretty much ready here. And he, and Kirk was like, you know, shooing Brian away and saying, you know, hold, hold on. I've got to finish introducing myself to everybody. And he really made a point of introducing himself to every single person on that set. And then the next day he comes onto set and he goes around to every single person again and knows them by name. (laughs) And he's like, hey, Bob, how are you doing today? Hey, Joe, how are you doing today? And he he, he called them out, every single one of them by name. Well, every crew member was just, their jaws were on the floor. This had never happened to them before. And they loved that man from that moment on, like, you know, they would have done anything for him. And he just... it it was such it made such an impression on me that I I do that on all the films that I direct. I make sure that I know everybody's name every every crew member by name and I always at the end of the day go around and shake everybody's hand and thank them by name and thank them for the work that they've done that day. And it just it it impressed upon me that when you're making a film, you're one big family and everybody's important from the top all the way down to you know, the low man on the totem pole. No, there's no hierarchy, not on a film set. Everybody's there to do a job. It's a, and it's only going to work if everybody's, you know, on the same page and we're all working together for a common goal. And we're like, you know, everybody's a cog in a a well-oiled machine. And I'm telling you, it just, it makes working on films so much more fun and so much more like a family atmosphere when when you feel that everybody is on your side and kurt you know he just had that ability to to just you know bring everybody under his wing it was it was amazing to see and made such an impression on me and you know you see what happens when that when that Doesn't get done, and people are just kind of there doing a job, and they're not really into it, and it's just, you know, it makes all the difference in the world. I was so impressed by by that, and all of his professionalism, and he, uh, you know, he was he had directed some films, he you know produced, he had his his production company. um, uh, I think it was called Brenner Productions. Anyway. You know, so he was, he was always looking for ways to, to help out or, you know, little tweaks to suggestions for the script or dialogue or anything else. And, you know, sometimes that can become very annoying, but, you know, he's a professional, he's been in it forever and his his ideas were really, really good. And, and Brian very much considered, you know, took everything into consideration that he would say. And, um. And obviously, they got along great because he came back and did home movies right after it with him. So it was it was very very impressive. I, I couldn't have been more impressed with working with him. And uh, John Cassavetes was great on that film. Um, it was interesting interviewing him how he talked about how he really did these kinds of films and these kinds of roles in sort of you know big Hollywood movies to be able to finance the low budget films that he wrote and directed (laughs) and uh so but you know he certainly wasn't phoning it in let me tell you he was a powerhouse and was you know really did an incredible performance and there was also fiona fiona lewis in that movie who i was in awe about from because she was in dr five's rises again and she had played a small part in the fearless vampire killers and she was in the Dan Curtis Dracula and she was, you know, had done, you know, all these other things that I was a big fan of. So I was just as impressed to meet Fiona Lewis as I was Kirk Douglas, practically, <laughs> which sounds kind of crazy, but it's true. And, um, and Amy Irving, my God, this is one, uh, one of the stars of Carrie, which to this day is my very favorite De Palma film ever. And I could just, kill myself that I, you know, was so close to being able to, you know, work on that in in the timeline of his movies and just missed out. And, uh, because that would have been really incredible to have worked on. Um, and, uh, you know, but at any rate, it was, it was quite a, you know, I, I went to film school at the university of South Carolina, but my real film school was working for De Palma for sure.
0: So you got, you got a diploma degree in film school, so to speak. But there's one there's <laughs> no kidding. There's one other actor in the film, Charles Derning, who's one yes. of my favorite character actors. You know, who I've never seen him do a bad performance, and he always brings, no, he, a, he was in Sisters, I mean, and, and things yeah, like that. Yeah, I know.
1: And, yeah, I mean, he had history with De Palma, and he was just, oh my God, he's such a good actor and such a nice guy and wonderful to work with. And you know, there's another one um, that De Palma kind of discovered in the Fury, and that was Dennis Franz, who went on to NYPD Blue fame and all of that. And um, and he, you know, he, he was just a local actor in Chicago and played got cast as this cop who had just bought a brand new Cadillac, and the Cadillac gets commandeered in a for a chase scene with Kirk Douglas and and um. Dennis just had all these funny reactions and De Palma let him improvise and kind of add it to his part and everything. And, and we just, you know, I was a witness to this kind of nothing role kind of blossom into something really memorable and funny and, and De Palma, you know, egging him on to do more and and expanding the role. And then of course he ended up casting him as the policeman or the detective in Dresden. Hill, and then he goes on and plays a major part in Blowout and also in Body Double and stuff. And so he became kind of, you know, a regular diploma player until he suddenly got, you know, in um, YPD Blue and, you know, became, you know, this huge Emmy Award, multi-Emmy Award winning, you know, star on television.
0: Now, in, in home movies, you said Nancy Allen was there and she was also in um, Future future Films with you. Too. What was Nancy Allen yeah. like? I know, oh my I know God, you and her are close friends. We are to this very day. She is the
1: nicest person in the freaking world. Um, and she, of course, had you know, married De Palma and was married to him back in those days. And she had been in Carrie. She played the bad girl in Carrie, the one that pulls the, the rope of the bucket of blood. She and, and Travolta were were the couple in that film. Anyway, I just loved her so much and uh and we just became we hit it off we became very close friends back in those days and I mean gosh I mean really honestly when she and De Palma divorced you know how a lot of times when people get divorced their friends kind of get divorced too there's sort of you know sort of camp in, in two camps and um I ended up losing touch with De Palma but staying really close friends with Nancy and and uh I ended up directing Nancy in a, in a Showtime thriller called Acting on Impulse in 1993, and we've just we've just always remained friends. I literally was talking to her yesterday, and uh, so yeah, it's just she she's fantastic. She um, doesn't do much acting anymore because she became the um, executive director of Spark, which is a cancer support group that was founded by Wendy Jo Sperber, who um, was very good friends with Nancy, an actress, who was, um, had, had been in I Want to Hold Your Hand with Nancy, and also 1941, the Spielberg film with Nancy. And then um, Wendy Jo was uh, the star of uh, Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks, that series during the 80s. And um, she was just this hilarious actress. And she starred in a film I produced called The First Time. And so I knew her as well, and um, she unfortunately in the 90s was diagnosed with cancer, and she founded this this organization, we Spark. and then after she sadly passed away, Nancy um, took over. Nancy had been volunteering and doing all kinds of stuff for we Spark when Wendy Jo was still alive, but when she passed away, Nancy took over and continued the organization as its executive director, and... Um, and so that's what she's kind of devoted her life to, which is incredible. And, uh, and you know, they raise tons of money for, for um, cancer support for people who have cancer and for people who are dealing with family members who have cancer and everything. It's, a, it's just a great organization and I love her to death. And she, um, you know, uh, I just, I can't say enough good things about her <laughs> anyway.
0: Well, and, and I think we'll use her, uh, we'll use Dennis Franz and her as a segue to Dress the Kill.
1: Yes. Well, it was, you know, working on Dress the Kill was incredible. And I just wrote a whole memoir on the making of it um, 13,000 words. And uh, this magazine called Boobs and Blood, <laughs> um, the editor gave me carte blanche to take over the entire issue. And so the whole issue is devoted to my memoir of working on Dress to Kill and it's um you know 52 pages I think something like that 13,000 words 175 photos and um it's and it, it was just been nominated for a Rondo Award for best article of the year I'm very proud about that and I uh, So, you know, if you're interested in that film, you're going to find out more than you could ever find anywhere else in in this issue. So check, definitely check that out. And, um, Nancy, I was, I was just, uh, telling her about getting the nomination and she's very happy about that. And she's, um, actually going to, um, pose for a, a picture holding the magazine next week. And, uh, so I'm, you know, waiting to get that. I can't wait. And, um, so anyway, it's pretty. It's been pretty fun to kind of relive all of that. And I, uh, Keith Gordon, who was also in it, he he got a got me a selfie holding the magazine a few weeks ago, and uh, so it's 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 been fun to kind of you know relive all of those memories again. But it was an incredible film for me to see, you know, being put together, and more so than working on the Fury, because when I went up to Chicago to work on the Fury, it was starting to shoot, like the day I got there. Whereas with *Stress to Kill, I was involved in all of the preparation. And De Palma, very much like Hitchcock, you know, the, the pre-production was just as important as the shooting, because everything was pre-planned, and he storyboarded everything out on these cards at his office, and seeing all of the creativity that went into the development of the movie was just as important as the, the, as the actual shooting. So I really got to see it all come together. Um, and as I say, I mean, that was really my education. It was, it was just incredible. And, that, and Michael Caine was on that. I mean, you know, again, another legendary actor. And, uh, and Angie Dickinson. I mean, you know, it was, it was quite, quite something to see it all come together there was a um, scene uh, toward the end of the movie. There's this, what do you think it's going to, you know, when everything's kind of over and you think this is the, the last scene of the movie and it was a, a restaurant scene and Nancy Allen and Keith Gordon are sitting at a table and they're talking about um, the actual, what, what a transgender person goes through in the actual surgery of, Changing genders, and they're going into the graphic details of what is actually done. And this nosy woman from the next table is overhearing all of this gruesome discussion, and she's looking over and, and mugging and giving all of these, you know, appalled expressions. Well, the woman at that other table was Mary Davenport, who had played Keith Gordon's mom in home movies. And she was also the real life mother of Jennifer Salt, who was in Sisters. she was the the, the journalist who sees the murder from her apartment mm-hmm. across the way, and not. Uh, and Jennifer Salt nowadays is one of the producers that works on a lot of the Ryan Murphy things. Most recently, she was one of the producers on Ratchet, the TV series. But um. I, Mary Davenport's husband and Jennifer Salt's dad was Waldo Salt, who was the Oscar winning screenwriter of Midnight Cowboy and Day of the Locust, all these great things. So it was so much fun to have Mary there to have this little home movies reunion for that scene with Nancy and Keith and her. And I got a picture of the four of us, all of you know, the the Home Movies alumni together in that restaurant. Well, we shot that restaurant at Windows on the World, which was the top of the World Trade Center. And De Palma wanted to be able to look out the window and see this incredible view of all of Manhattan and surrounding areas and everything. And they had to jump through hoops to get the restaurant. It was a very expensive location, just all the logistics of getting everybody up there and the elevators and all the equipment and everything else. Well, turns out the day we are there, it's pouring down rain, completely overcast. All you can see out the windows is white clouds, just just solid white, nothing. <laughs> <laughs> and Obama wanted to cancel the shooting and come back another day. And the producer is like, no, my God, it's costing us, you know, outrageous amount of money. We have to shoot. We cannot come back. And... So they had to reconfigure all the shots because most of the shots were going to be aiming out the window to take advantage of the view. And now, you know, it's like a white sheet. So they reconfigured the shots to look mostly in into the restaurant. And um, and we shot it. But it could have been shot, you know, in a little set that, you know, that we had built or done on, on the, the stages that we were using for some of the other shots. But uh, anyway, that was just one of the unfortunate things um, you know, one of the unfortunate days where Mother Nature was not on our side, but um, it was—it it was just you know an incredible film. All of it shot, mostly all of it shot in New York, um, either on locations in New York or in—we um, built some sets in, in a warehouse. Uh, but the mu- the famous museum sequence where Angie Dickinson uh, is flirting with this stranger and ends up going back to his apartment, um, that the museum, De Palma wanted to shoot at the Metropolitan Museum, but they would only allow a permit to shoot the exterior. So we shot at the exterior of that museum when she comes out and um, gets into the cab with the guy. But the interior (laughs) We ended up going to Philadelphia to shoot at the Philadelphia Museum, the one, you know, the famous steps that Rocky runs up mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, yes. I'm going to fly now, and, and, and all of that. That's that museum. And we went and we did the interiors there. And De Palma was from Philadelphia originally, so I think being the hometown boy and all of that helped him, you know, cut the red tape and be able to, to shoot inside, you know, a major museum like that and we had to follow a lot of protocols and you know we were always guarded and stuff well they had we did all these steadicam sequences and back then steadicam was brand new technology but the steadicam is following angie going walking through the different galleries and different things well there were so many guards that were guarding us uh, to make sure we didn't you know do anything to all of the paintings and everything did they they shots kept getting blown because there'd be a guard in the shot or, or even one of our own crew. And, you know, so it was, it, it was tricky to, uh, to have all of those amazing shots, but, but it, you know, it, it turned out just incredible.
0: Now, what was it like, what, what was like Michael Caine and Angie Dickinson like? I mean, cause I'm, you're talking like well, the legends again of, of the industry.
1: Yeah. Total legends. Well, you know, Michael Caine was just as professional as, you could imagine. I mean, he was so nice. Um, He, you know, it's a bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen the film, uh, but most people have seen it. But he, he ends up, he is the the transvestite killer. Um, And when he appeared on set for the first time in his, in the psychiatrist office set in drag, he, he joked that, well, I knew I, that uh, if I was in this business long enough, I'd end up saying me mum, <laughs> 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 And so, and that broke the tension and everybody laughed. And we got it out of our system because everybody wanted to laugh when they saw him in drag for the first time. And he totally knew how to, you know, take care of that by making sure everybody did laugh and just got, got it over with. And, um, and that's how he was. I mean, he just, he he had every situation imaginable in his long storied career that, you know, he just, he knew how to put people at ease. And uh, he was, he was great. And then um, Angie was, was, she was something. She would, uh, <laughs> there was the one day, okay, uh, here's a little piece of gossip, but I do talk about this in the article. And Nancy gave me permission to talk about this. Um, She, uh, the one day when Nancy and Angie had a scene together was when Angie gets slashed to death in the elevator and Nancy's character, the elevator comes down to another floor and the door opens and Nancy's about to get onto the elevator and she sees Angie still alive but bloody and everything on the floor of the elevator and they... Exchange eye contact, and and uh, Angie Dickinson character's hand is reaching up, you know, like help me, and um, and then Nancy sees in the mirror, the little um, fisheye mirror up in the corner. She sees that the assailant, the killer, is still hiding inside the elevator, just out of sight. And so they just so Angie and Nancy have this little bit of eye contact, but then. Nancy's not getting on that elevator at all because the killer's in there. And uh, so then the door shuts and as it's shutting, uh, Nancy's able to, the the killer drops the razor and Nancy grabs the razor just before the door closes. And um, so that's the sum total of their screen time together. And so, you know, okay, well, this this is probably going to go very quickly. Well, not exactly. <laughs> on that particular day, Nancy came. Nancy was going to be in some shots without Angie um, at the beginning of the day. And so on the call sheet, Nancy was the first one, first actress called her call time. And so Nancy goes to makeup and hair, and she's getting her makeup and hair done by the, by the head makeup and hair artist. And Angie was called a little bit later in the day. Um, so that they would be done with Nancy about the time that Angie would be arriving. Well, Angie was used to being done by the head makeup and head hair artist on her other days, and when she arrived on set, she would come directly from her hotel with no makeup and her and she would have a hat on and her big sunglasses and her collar pulled up so that no one could see her and because her hair would be damp from the shower and she'd have no makeup on and she would want to just rush right into the makeup and hair trailer before anyone could see her and immediately get her face put on (laughs) and well she ended up on that day for some bizarre reason she ended up getting there early and she bolted right into the makeup and hair trailer Wanting to be done immediately, but Nancy was still in the chair and was only about halfway done. So, um, but Angie was insistent, and she couldn't like stand around, you know, without makeup on and everything. And so, Nancy, being the polite person she is, and deferred to the big star, and you know, said please, you know, you go ahead. And uh, so then. They suddenly call Nancy to the set and they're ready to go. And word got sent back that Nancy wasn't ready. And then Brian, who had no idea what was going on down at the base camp, you know, wait a minute, you know, was Nancy late? Why is she not ready? And what's going on? So it turned into this sort of tempest in a teapot. (laughs) (laughs) And Brian had to come down from set and, and Nancy was upset and didn't want to, you know, didn't want to be the one to tell Angie that Angie needed to get out of the chair so Nancy could be, you know, it was just, it was just one of those delicate, unfortunate misunderstandings all the way around. And then the makeup and hair, for, you know, people were nervous that they were going to get fired, that they had, you know, they, they had done something wrong. And long story short, they finally, um, you know, they They finished Angie. They decided it's best to just let her go ahead and get done. And then Nancy got back in the chair and they finished Nancy. And then they all come up to the set and now they're ready to shoot. And, uh, you know, but a good couple of hours was probably lost over this little kerfuffle. And um, (laughs) we always joked that the, you know, the, the bloodshed that was going on in that elevator was, you know, it was a little ironic on that particular day because of <laughs> all this that had gone down. <laughs> but I don't even, I honestly, you know, everybody was afraid to say anything to Angie because they didn't want to upset her or make her feel like she had done something wrong. So to this day, I don't even think Angie was aware of the, you know, the, the, sort of um, chain reaction that, that had gone on around just this uh, of her arriving on set early, which she probably found in her mind is, you know, oh, I'm so professional, I'm showing up early.
0: <laughs> I'm going to do him a favor. And, well, you know. Yeah,
1: so I'm going to do a favor today. I'll show up early.
0: <laughs> what do they say? The best intentions sometimes don't work out too well for you. You had good intentions.
1: That's, that exactly, exactly right. Exactly right. But Angie was she was great, and she you know she did such an amazing job with that with that character. She had a lot. of, I remember she had. This is one thing I didn't put in that article. I should have. She had a lot of hair pieces, and she and they were. She named them, <laughs> so she would tell the hair, the hair people. You know, well, I think today I'll have the Jennifer. And They would <laughs> you know bring over and they they go. She'd have a whole lineup of hair pieces labeled by name. <laughs>
0: I do know from, from reading about her a little bit, the one thing you don't want to do is play poker against Angie Dickinson because she'll probably take all your money.
1: Yes, I have heard that. You're right. Now, she did um, – a lot of people don't realize this. She did full nudity in Dress to Kill. In the wide shots, she was, she was totally fine to do head-to-toe, full nudity. So in the shower, if you're seeing a wide shot, it's her. And when she's getting when she gets up out of bed and is getting dressed, she's completely naked when she gets up out of bed, full frontal everything. That is her. Where they used a body double was in all of the close-ups of, of body parts in the shower scenes and 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 that stuff. And um, they hired a the uh, penthouse head of the year, Victoria Johnson, I think was her name, and um, and she had flaming red hair. So let's just say that she needed to bleach it blonde. And I'm not talking about on the top of her head <laughs> <laughs> uh, in order to be a match for, for auntie.
0: <laughs> Cause you know, people will notice that they'll be like, wait a minute. it's."
1: Yeah. They would definitely have noticed that. And uh, so yeah, those. Those scenes and they were tricky to do because the shower you couldn't have hot water because the steam from hot water would have fogged up the lens of the cameras. So it was barely lukewarm, and they would you they would make the steam out of um, you know fog machines like you'd have in a disc attack or whatever, and uh, and so it was tricky. And then Nancy has a nude scene in a shower scene for the end of that movie and went through the same you know, same situation of, you know, not being very comfortable in, in that, with that water, you know, it was, it was not, not easy. (laughs) And those scenes would take a long time to do because there were so many angles and shots and and stuff. So it was, it was, it was trying and all of the shower scenes for both of those were done, you know, in consecutive days uh, on on the set they had built those um showers and everything with flyaway walls and you know if you could get the camera for overhead shots or you know wh- wherever you needed the camera you could do it and um so they were all constructed on stage
0: yeah i've had, i've had sometimes cuz of camping trips or whatever you i've had to take showers in ambient temperature water and um it's, it's not the most fun experience when you're used to the nice no. conveniences. You're like, Ooh, this is the, t-. but I mean, you do get used to it, but it's, you, you want to get in and out as quick as you can.
1: <laughs> but, and that's the, and that was the other problem, you know, just as they'd be getting used to it. Okay. Cut. Okay. Then they turn off the water. Okay. Now you're standing there wet and the wardrobe person runs in with the towel. So you're damp and you're kind of getting cold from, you know, just standing there damp. It was just, you know, it was it was not like you were taking a long shower. You were in and out of that thing constantly, wet, dry, wet, dry, damp. You know, it was just you know, it it it, it it's it was not glamorous.
0: <laughs> it, it's it's it, you know, people always think, oh, it must have been warm, but obviously there's so behind the scenes stuff that people don't realize that it's uh, yeah. It, 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 you know, sometimes sometimes some of those days are tough.
1: Yeah, yeah. No, no kidding. And you know the set was closed whenever there was any nudity going on, and so you had to wait for everybody to clear out, all of the crew, people that weren't necessary, and then you know the, they'd take off a robe or whatever and hand that to the wardrobe person who'd run out and then then they'd do the shot, and then that wardrobe person would have to run back in and put the towel around them then it would they would announce that the set was open again and then all the people would come in and have to do adjustments or whatever needed to be made for the next take and you know it, it's it's a circus
0: <laughs> it's it sounds like it and of course like you said to working with the palma and him just throwing you to the wolves or like you said into the deep end of the pool um yeah. then, but see but you learn so much because i mean you you learn the tech. You learn a lot of things when you're in the college, the university. But when you get out there, and then you find out. Okay, this is how it's applied in the real world. This is how it's, it's really real going to be done. So um, it, it's like when so Rod- it's like that movie Rodney Dangerfield Back to School, where they're talking about oh, you do all these things, and he's like, yeah, but in the real world, you have to do this and this and this and this and this. Yeah. <laughs> so
1: true. So true. You you never learn the stuff in school that, that you really, you know, the practical day to day things that you would, you actually learn on set. There's no question.
0: And that helped form you. It becomes the director that you are now, but, but each director has to start at the beginning. So yeah, some of your early works, which, which, which ones do you want to talk about? I know you've, you've done like double negative guilty as charged out there, all these different ones. Well, I
1: did, I did, yeah, I mean, I did a, a short film um, called Double Negative. It's actually available on the Fury uh, Blu-rays that came out in Europe the, from Arrow in the UK, and uh, it's it's a short film about a horror film director who's making a low budget horror film called Coat Hanger Massacre, and his sleazy producers decide that it they're they're going to make more money by um, by stealing the negative and collecting the insurance, <laughs> than to try to release the film, and the sleazy producers are played by Bill Finley, who played the Phantom of the Paradise and also played the evil doctor in Sisters, and um, Wayne Knight, who was Newman on Seinfeld, and uh, and Bill Randolph plays the director, and he was the cab driver in Dressed Kill. So there's a lot of De Palma connection going on in that. And I actually edited that short in De Palma's editing room. He gave me permission to use his his editing equipment between projects. And so it was, um, it was a lot of fun and it got, it got some attention. It got selected for Sundance and, um, got into the Chicago film festival as well, where it won an award. And then it, um, it opened theatrically because I'd shot it on 35 millimeter with the idea that I really wanted it to play in theaters. And so it, uh, in New York, it played with, with, um, Emerald forest, the John Borman film. And then it also opened in Los Angeles with Scorsese's after hours. And it, it got reviewed in the New York times, really great review. And so that became my calling card as a director. And it landed me my first feature film, called Guilty as Charge, with Rod Steiger, Lauren Hutton, uh, Heather Graham, Isaac Hayes, and Belda Rubenstein from Poltergeist. And, uh, and that was in 1991, and uh, shot in Los Angeles. I'd been living in New York up until that time, and I ended up moving to L.A. to do that film and decided, L.A. was where it was happening, and so I stayed, and I've been in Los Angeles for the last 30-some-odd years. Um, But anyway, that was my first feature film, Guilty as Charged, and it was a, you know, a dark, I I mentioned before, it's a dark comedy about a madman who kidnaps murderers, puts them on his own death row, and fries them in his own electric chair. (laughs) And so the dungeon and the jail cells and everything, I went Crazy and designed these sets that are very German expressionistic. And um, I was so happy in some of the reviews that came out. And then they compared it to... I had one review that compared it to James Whale and The Bride of Frankenstein and comparing it to the Dr. Fives movies. And I mean, like, these are all, you know, films that I just absolutely worship. And the fact that they were able to... Kind of see the influences in in my film was was really pretty special, and uh, and after that I did a a Showtime thriller called Acting on Impulse, and that was um, uh, it was about a scream queen whose producer is found dead, and she's the prime suspect, and she has to go on the lam to try to prove her innocence, and it starred Linda Fiorentino, who had been in Scorsese's After Hours, and Nancy Allen that we talked about and C. Thomas Howell and Isaac Hayes again, uh, Zelda Rubinstein again, um, and a whole slew of other um, famous faces. Um, Dick Sargent from Bewitched, Peter Lupus from Mission Impossible, Donnie Most from Happy Days, uh, Paul Bartel and Mary Warnock from uh, Eating Raul, Miles O'Keefe from the Bo Derek Tarzan, um, God, Tim McGuire, who played Hatchet Face and Crybaby, uh, literally just about every face you see in that movie is famous, <laughs> and uh, it was so much fun to, to cast all these great people.
0: Let me ask you and, one, uh, what was it like working with Isaac Hayes? Because you, you, you that was two movies. Oh, I know you did other films with him also, but Isaac Hayes, yeah, Hayes to me has, those two
1: has, and the Oblivion films. I mean, and he also did a voice. Of one of the tiki gods in Magic Island. So, I mean, that's one, two, three, at least five films. And um, he was, I just loved Isaac so much. I had loved his music. You know, he was an Oscar winner for a theme from Shaft. And, uh, but he had also been in Escape from New York as an actor. I just, I just loved him. And so when we were casting Guilty as Charged, I, you know, we said, why don't we why don't we get Isaac Hayes for this role? And everybody was like, whoa, Isaac Hayes? I hadn't thought about that. Yeah, that'd be cool. And he agreed to do it. And so that's when I met him. We hit it off. And I just, you know, he just became a repertory player for me. And I always tried to get him roles in my films. But when he did this voice of the Tiki God in... Um, in Magic Island, it was a three-headed Tiki God. It Actually, the other two voices are Martine Beswick, who we all know oh, from yes. Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde and Thunderball, and, and you know, he was the uh, the second female lead in One Million Years B.C., etc. Um, and then the third voice was Terry Sweeney from Saturday Night Live, who was a good friend of mine. Really funny guy. So um, Isaac had, you know, it, it took an hour. I mean, it was nothing. But Isaac loved doing a card, you know, this sort of voiceover of a character. And he said, you know, I would love to do more of that. And I said, well, Isaac, you need to get a voiceover agent because there it's a very specialized world and you know, you could do car- cartoon voices and that kind of stuff. Well, he did. He went out and he got an agent and he ended up doing the voice of Chef on South Park. <laughs> and So that became a huge part of his career for a long time. Um, But anyway, he was he was just he was a great great guy. I just absolutely loved loved him to death. I will say when you unfortunately he's no longer with us. He's passed
0: away now. It's sad, that. But when you brought up the the Shaft song, the theme to me that's still the best one of maybe I shouldn't say the best, but in my top group of song and movie being perfectly in harmony and how you know because there's certain there's certain songs with the movie or certain themes that just fit a movie like a glove i mean it's and it, it is yeah. one of the best ones out there i mean i hate to say one thing's the best because as we both know things change in ourselves yeah. and the things but to me it 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 just you can't picture that as soon as you hear the song you're just like right there with it the whole way through you are right there
1: and by the way, for those of us old enough to have been watching the Academy Awards shows back in those days, that year he performed that song on the Oscars and came out in a gold chain vest, bare chested, with just this gold chain vest, and we'll never forget that it was. It made such an impression. I mean, his, his performance of the song on that Oscars was was quite indelible. <laughs>
0: It it, it, it uh, it's something that you just never forget, and I think I think it's probably on YouTube, so people can probably search oh, it yeah. and find it and and enjoy it. But he was he's such an he was such an incredible performer in so many different ways, and it's just yeah. That's why I had to bring it up to, him up to you, but also Rod Steger stagger. I'm working with Rod Steger because he did other films with you too, but this this one was like the the big part. I mean. You're talking yeah. one of the well, better he, actors. He, he was the, the lead.
1: He was the lead in this, in guilty as Charge. my first feature film. And here I am with this Oscar winning powerhouse actor. And, you know, I was intimidated. I didn't know how this was going to work out. And, you know, he was probably not so sure about me being a first time director and everything else. And so on the first day, he, uh, um, he's, he's giving this big monologue speech at a podium. <clears throat> and so we shoot the wide shot, the master. And so then we, we get a good take of that. And then I go, okay, let's, um, we're going to move the camera in and get a closer shot. And so, Steiger comes over to me and he goes, Now Sam, what is the framing? Is it uh, you know, is it down to the waist? Is it uh, and I said, No, it's about halfway up your torso, you know, chest and above. And he goes, Oh, thank heavens. And he unbuckles his pants, drops them to the floor, and says, It's really hot in here. <laughs> <laughs> and so then he performs the the closer shot in his boxer shorts <laughs> and it just totally broke the ice. And um, he, he um, you know, he could tell that that I knew what I wanted, that I was prepared. You know, I had my shot list. I knew exactly what we were, you know, doing next on everything. And, you know, by the end of the first day, he had gotten a lot of confidence that, uh, that you know, he was in good hands, but, uh, that I wasn't going to, you know, steer this thing off the rails. And, uh, and we got along great, and uh, he was fantastic. I, I loved working with him, and ended up working with him again on a film called Out There. He, he came, I called him up to do me a favor and play sort of a cameo guest role as a general in that. And, uh, and it was fantastic. It was a UFO comedy on Showtime that starred Bill Campbell from The Rocketeer, Billy Bob Thornton was in it. Julie Brown, um, who has become one of my dearest and closest friends. And I've directed her in a million things. Um, uh, Bobcat Goldthwait, um, June Lockhart, again, Carl Stryken, um, from, from my Oblivion films was in it. Um, gosh, some, uh, Jill St. Uh, John. Jill St. John. Ugh. Uh, I, David, David Ross. Drawing a blank. David Ross. David Rashi, Yeah, David Rashi. Um, Oh gosh, so many people. Again, just like every face in that movie is somebody you know. P.J. Foles does a tiny little walk on uh, from Terry, mm-hmm. and you know, and just uh, and and also Michael Talbot from Terry. In fact, it's P.J. Foles and Michael Talbot who were the couple going around at the prom. Um, collecting ballots but then sneaking the, the forged ballots that all are voting for carrie into the into the pot so they were sort of the bill you know two of the villains and um anyway just uh, again a really really fun movie with an incredible cast and by the way bill campbell had met uh, Jennifer Connolly his leading lady on The Rocketeer and they were they became romantically involved during that making of that film where they were still seeing each other when we made out there. So Jennifer Connolly would visit that all the time. And we were doing a grocery store scene and I they we didn't have the money for many extras and, and I was like, you know, we really need a couple People in front of Bill Campbell and Julie Brown to fill in this spot, and I said, and Jennifer was there, and I said, Jennifer, come on, we're going to go play a couple in in line in front of Bill, and so we just appear as extras, no lines or anything, and you'll blink, you know, if you blink, you'll miss us. But there's Jennifer Conley and me. So for the movie, I have three Oscar winners: <laughs> I have broad Steiger, Billy Bob Thornton. And Jennifer Connelly
0: in that movie. <laughs> and I remember because you were writing a check at the cashier, you know, for the grocery store. Yeah. And um, for, yeah, those, yeah. for those for those who want to see out there, it's out there on Amazon Prime, if I'm remembering correctly, because I think that's how I saw yeah. it. So, uh, right again, you know, after this thing's done, if you want to watch something that's really interesting, because it has that sci fi um, mystery cover up angles and. Um, a lot of little dead yeah. ends that you know, like like they're going, they're trying to solve this mystery and and to keep going into different dead ends and and trying to figure it out. But it has the humor. I call it the Irvin humor because I'm after watching a number of your films. It, 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 there's a certain style that you usually will bring to. Yeah, it.
1: yeah, very sort of dark humor and tongue in cheek, and yeah, it's it's definitely got a lot of humor to it, and uh, yeah, it was it was loads of fun to make. And then, you know, not long after that, um, I did, uh, I wrote and directed a thriller called, uh, Kiss of a Stranger with Mariel Hemingway, Diane Cannon, David Carradine and, um, Corbin Bernson. And while that was in production at a company called, um, region entertainment i became involved in being one of the producers of gods and monsters that they made which was a dream project to be involved with it was um starred ian mckellen as james whale the director of bride of frankenstein and frankenstein and the invisible man and the old dark house etc and we actually it, 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 it's it's takes place in James Whale's retirement later in life, but there's a flashback scene of him directing Bride of Frankenstein. So we got to actually recreate the laboratory set from that movie. And we even got the original tennis strict electrical equipment that had been used in the original Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And Mel Brooks had tracked it down and, and used it in young Frankenstein. So we had this, this, Historic equipment decorating that set. And uh, it was just a freaking dream come true. And we found an actress who looked exactly like uh, like Elsa Lanchester and had the hair and, you know, oh, my God. It was, everything was just perfect. And uh, Bill Condon directed that movie. It got, it became a big award season darling. It won so many critics. Association Awards, National Board of Review. It swept everything there. It got Best Picture, Best Actor, Ian McKellen, Best Supporting Actress, Lynn Redgrave, Best Director, Bill Condon, Best Screenplay, Bill Condon. And it got um, Golden Globe nominations, and, and Lynn Redgrave won the Golden Globe for Supporting Actress. And then with the Oscars, it got three Oscar nominations, one for Ian McKellen, Best Actor, one for Lynn Redgrave, Supporting Actress. And it also was nominated for Best Screenplay. And it won the Oscar for Screenplay. So, it, it, you know, I, I actually have a film that I worked on that won an Oscar. <laughs> and so it was, it was just a, a really, really fantastic project to be involved in. And uh, it was based on a book called Father of Frankenstein by Chris Bram. And I had actually tried to option that book because I wanted to direct it. And he said, well, Bill Condon beat you by a week. He just optioned it. And so um, I had known Bill Condon through Nancy Allen. (laughs) And so I (laughs) called up Bill. And Bill had written a couple of Nancy films. And, uh, and, And so I had met him at some of her parties. And so I called him up and wished him well. And I said, have you thought of Ian McKellen for the role? And he said, oh my God, we're on the same page. I just sent a copy of the book to Ian McKellen to see if we can get him attached. And so I had sort of been, you know, not involved, but knew about what was kind of churning. And then the next thing I heard, um, Bill had submitted his script uh, with Ian McKellen attached to this production company where I was making because i a stranger. And I just told the head of the company, I said, you have to do this movie and I have to work on it. <laughs> and that's how it all kind of ended up. It was, it was fantastic.
0: Yeah, Cause also had brand, Brendan Frazier in it. Um, yeah. And yeah, it is, it's a wonderful movie. I remember seeing it years and years ago and I watched it again a few years ago. It is just so well done and it's just uh, you know it's, it's I, don't, I don't think it got as, it got attention as you said but it still I felt it needed it should have got more attention but I think sometimes certain movies hit at certain times and the mores of society Um, I, don't, I, I think with the Oscars being a little more old-fashioned back then didn't give it the um, atten- as much attention as it should have got like it should have gotten even maybe best picture nomination
1: yeah no it definitely should have and it and it did win some of the critics association's best picture. So, um, but it was, you know, it was a small art house kind of movie. So it wasn't, you know, getting all the big mainstream multiplexes and that sort of thing. And uh, it definitely is a film that people should seek out. It's, it's just, uh, it's a really special film. It's very emotional and very um, just brilliantly directed and written by Bill Condon. Who went on to, you know, huge heights after that. I mean, my God, he wrote she wrote the script for Chicago, which won Best Picture, and then he wrote and directed Dream Girls, which won an Oscar for Jennifer Hudson, and he directed the last two Twilight movies, and he did the the live action Beauty and the Beast for Disney, which grossed over a billion dollars. And you know the guy just is unstoppable. I mean, just you know, everything he touches is really, really special.
0: Now, when when you were a producer on this film, did you get to um, go on set at all to see any of the sets, or were you more of a, a distant? Oh producer? yeah,
1: yeah. No, I was I was there every day, and uh, it was and and I also um, some of your listeners may know David Scull, who is a um, great author of many books on horror films. And uh, he and I collaborated on a making of documentary that is on the the DVD of the film. And um, we were working on that while it was shooting and interviewed, you know, all the participants from Ian McKellen on down and also found people who were still around who knew James Whale. For instance, um, Curtis Harrington, who's a director who did Who Slew Auntie Roo and What's the Matter with Helen and Games, he was very close friends with with James Whale, and we interviewed him for the documentary. And we also interviewed um, uh, Gloria Stewart, who was the star of Invisible Man mm-hmm. and The Old Dark House and stuff with. Uh, you know, it worked with James Whale, and uh, and was the played the elderly woman in Titanic. Mm-hmm. Of course, is what she's most thanks for to younger generations. And we interviewed her. She she's no longer with us. Both she and Curtis are no longer with us now. But we were very lucky that they were still around at the time, and we interviewed them for the documentary. And uh, and Clyde Barker was also one of the producers on it, and we interviewed him and. It was just a it was it, it was a really, really fun documentary to kind of talk about the history of James Whale as well as the the making of, of Gods and monsters.
0: Now what what is Ian McCallum like? Because I mean I've I've enjoyed his work for, for god, I don't know how long and he's got like certain actors have the voice, like James Earl Jones, yes. Morgan Freeman, yeah. Sean Connery, Ian McKellen. As soon as you hear the voice, and they know how to use that instrument well, so well, It's what, what, what is he like? You know, back
1: then, he was mainly known as this great Shakespearean actor, and, you know, he hadn't done The Lord of the Rings, and and, and X-Men, and all these, you know, big franchise movies at the time, and So, you know, all of us expected a very serious actor. And with Brendan Fraser, who had done a lot of comedy stuff, we figured he was going to be, you know, a cut-up and the funny guy on the set. And it actually turned out to be the complete opposite because Brendan was very intimidated to be working with this really great actor. And so Brendan was always in his trailer learning his lines, you know, making sure that everything was perfect. And so he was, he was not really, you know, hanging out at craft service or, you know, joking around with people at all. Whereas Ian, on the other hand, was the jokester and he loved to be around everybody and wanted to get to know everybody and was, was, Teasing people and telling jokes, and and uh, I just remember there were times when Bill would be they we they we'd be ready for the shot, and Bill would would have to like literally interrupt Ian from telling this long joke or something. <laughs> you know, um, Ian, we really need to get going. And Ian, just a minute, got almost to the punchline, and then he would you know finish the punchline, and then you know the three or four crew people gathered around him would laugh, and then you know, Bill would say, and action, and then Ian would just snap into character on a dime at the snap of a finger and be perfect. <laughs> I mean, it was it was amazing. He was so professional, and so he just, he was, he was, it was just incredible. When we were in pre-production, we wanted to visit, we couldn't, we couldn't rent the actual home that, james Whale lived in in his later years and um he did end up uh committing suicide in the swimming pool in real life and um but and ian and all of us and the production designer everybody we wanted to see the home and so we were able to convince the owners to let us come and tour the home and see the swimming pool and all of that and then from there we were you know, going to try to find a location that looked as, as much like it as possible, et cetera. And, but we all met um, in, the, in the driveway. We had made arrangements to do this and, um, and Ian had just flown in from London. So most of us had not even met Ian yet. And, and I had not and, and um, production designer and others had not yet. And so Ian was scheduled to meet us there and so we got there, We were Ian was running a little bit late, and so we're waiting in the driveway. We didn't want to knock on the door until we were all together mm-hmm. and ready. And so suddenly this antique 1950s Jaguar Roadster convertible comes roaring up the driveway with Ian McKellen in the driver's seat, looked like Mr. Toad, <laughs> and he he leaps out of the car, doesn't even open the little door. He just just hops out and he is wearing, I kid you not, a pair of hip hugger bell bottoms that looked like they had been bought on Carnaby Street in 1969 and they were baby blue in color and they were shiny patent leather. <laughs> and all of us, looked and I mean he was just such a vision in those bell bottoms and we just cracked up we were all laughing so hard and he was like sorry I'm late darling you know let's 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 you know let's not waste any time and get on to the tour and he just was he just was like Mr. Toad that's all I can compare him to which I love because I sort of feel like Mr. Toad is my spirit animal (laughs) (laughs) and he, he, you know, and and I wear kind of crazy fashion a lot myself, and I and I have such a, I, I just have such a fun time doing it, and and a tongue in cheek time doing it, and he was the same way, and and I really identified with him with all of that.
0: <laughs> it it sounds, what can you say? Your first impression of him, it just sounds like something wild and awesome, and it sounds like he was really somebody who enjoyed everybody on the set, like Kirk Douglas, and just. Wouldn't make yeah. sure everybody felt appreciated, which I think is oh, totally. a, a sign of a, a, a great actor, you know, where they just want everybody yeah. to know that, they, Hey, we're all, we're all on the team. We're all on the team. And I know yeah. I understand he's doing Hamlet again, I think online, like a virtual thing with Hamlet that they're getting ready to start yeah. rehearsing for. And, um, so I, I might actually finally get a chance to see him perform Hamlet, not in person, <laughs> but probably as good as I'm ever going to get.
1: Yeah, exactly. No, he, he is really something.
0: And Lynn Redgrave, what was she like?
1: Again, fantastic. She, she you know, totally professional. Um, one thing that was interesting was that, you know, we wanted to interview her for our documentary. Well, she uh, had a thing about not wanting to... Um, do an interview as Lynn Redgrave while wearing the wardrobe of her character mm-hmm. because she felt that that was sacred when she put on, cause she wore pads and, you know, it wasn't just a costume. It was a whole body suit and everything to make her um, body shape a little plumper and, and whatnot. And she was playing an older woman, you know, a, a, a Uh, European uh, you know it was just a it was a whole transformation and she took that very seriously and very method so when she got into that she sort of became that character and wanted to stay in character all day when she was in in that and she didn't want um, the still photographer on set to take pictures of her While, you know, if she was not in character, in other words, she, she said, you, you're free to take any pictures you want during a rehearsal or during a take, but don't take pictures of me when I'm, you know, chatting with somebody or talking to the director or whatever, because that's, that's this sort of weird part Lynn Redgrave part character. And I just don't feel comfortable with, with being photographed that way. And so When we wanted to interview her, she was like, well, I'm happy to do an interview, but you have to interview me as Lynn Redgrave. Um, And so, you know, she was like Angie. She would come to set with no makeup and no hair. You know, she she would just jump in the chair and they would turn, you know, do the transformation into this character. So she, you know, she said, I don't know when I'm going to be camera ready for Lynn Redgrave, because I want to have nice makeup and nice hair and all of that so we kept saying you know well maybe on a day when you don't have a lot to do and you know they you're done by lunch maybe we could you know then put you back through makeup and hair to you know turn into Lynn Redgrave, and we can do it that way and but it just You know, one thing led to another and it just wasn't happening. And suddenly it was her last day and we were like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. You know, we have to get Lynn Redgrave. And so she said, don't worry. I know, I promised you guys, don't worry. I know I'm working, you know, to the very last scene of the day after this long day. And we are like, oh God, she's never gonna, she's gonna say she's too tired. And, but nope, she stuck to her word. And at the end of the day, she had the makeup and hair people stay and and she got all glammed up as lid red gray, but she did the interview. So we were like, Whoo, that was a close one." <laughs> it was a nail biter to the to the bitter
0: end. And, and I find it interesting because I know a lot of people once they put that wardrobe on, that costume on, they feel that that transformation. And it's I know some yeah. actors doesn't bother them at all whether they're in or out. Like obviously with with, with Sir Ian. You know, he's just joking with everybody, but then he, you, you snap your fingers, he's in character and other people take it seriously. I know some people during the whole film, whether they're in costume or not, they never want to leave character. You know, you hear stories about yeah. that. So everybody approaches it differently. And it's just, it's kind of interesting to hear how everybody has that different take on how to keep themselves in that role so they can get the best performance they can, which obviously it worked really well for. Yeah,
1: no, it, it really did. And, she should have won the Oscar, and and she was nominated, thank God. And Ian McKellen should have won the Oscar, and he was nominated. But, you know, she did win the Golden Globe, as I say, and got some other critics' awards and everything. But it was – she was just fantastic in it. It was so great. And um, and she had previously won an Oscar for Georgie Girl. for, for And so she – you know, we had – it was just a powerhouse cast for, for you know, for what was – you know, limb, a very small-budgeted little movie. And uh, it was just a, a, a dream come true. The whole, the whole thing was, was just magical. And then not long after that, um, I ended up directing Elvira's Haunted Hill. And um, the, the way I got that job was really kind of crazy. I um, Not long after I'd done my first feature, Guilty as Charged, I went to a Hollywood party that was thrown by Terry Sweeney. Now, he's the guy from Saturday Night Live, Saturday Night Live, that I mentioned had done a mm-hmm. voice on the three headed tiki god mm-hmm. for, Magic, for Magic Island with Isaac Hayes and Martine Beswick doing the other voices. Well, Terry and his now husband, Lanier Laney, they, they were good friends of mine for years. In fact, Lanier had gone to with me at the University of South Carolina back in the days when I brought Brian De Palma out to do um, the film festival. And Lanier had been on the same film committee. So all these weird connections. But at any rate, they're throwing this party. And I look over in the corner and there is Cassandra Peterson. And I went over to Terry and I said, I didn't know you know Cassandra. And he goes, oh, yeah, sure. And you want to meet her? And I said, I sure do. I'm such a huge fan. So, um, he takes me over and this was 1992, maybe something like that. And she had done the first Elvira film, Elvira mistress of the dark in 88. So it was about maybe you know, three or four years old at that point. And I'd been a big fan of all of her hosting shows, of course. And, um, So he takes me over and introduces me and I'm fawning and telling her how much I love Elvira, mistress, the dark. And, and then Terry said, and Sam's the director. He just uh, did a film called guilty as charged. And Cassandra goes, I just saw that film. I love that film. In fact, I've been wanting to meet you because if I ever do another Elvira film, I want you to direct it. And I'm like, what? What have you been drinking girl? And, um, I didn't know what to think i didn't quite believe it and so anyway we became friends i she did a cameo for me in acting on impulse the one with um, nancy allen and linda Fiorentino, and um and i just became social friends with her and went to parties and when she did her pilot her tv pilot she invited me to come be part of the studio audience and um so i saw the you know shooting a that and And I was just kind of, a um, you know, became an extended family member to a degree. Well, they tried to get another Elvira film going for years. No one was biting. And she and her husband decided they were just going to finance it themselves. And they mortgaged their house and everything. And she called me up and she said, "Um, you know, we're going to be doing this Elvira film. My husband and I are financing it. I know I told you that you could direct it, but my husband, you know, felt like we really need to do our due diligence. And so we were considering a number of directors, but I definitely want to give you a shot. So, you know, you should come in and meet with us. So I went in, she handed me the script and she said, now this is, Elvira's Haunted Hills, and it's a spoof of the Vincent Price, Edgar Allan Poe, Roger Corman movies of the 60s, like Fit in the Pendulum and House of Usher, et cetera, et cetera. Are you familiar with those? And I'm like, uh, Defondra. (laughs) Uh, I know those films backwards and forwards. In fact, this is the monologue from the climax of Fit and the Pendulum that Vincent Price says to the guy on the slab. Do you know where you are, Bartolome? You are about to enter hell. Hell, the never world, the infernal region, the abode of the dead, a place of torment, Gehenna, Naraka, the pit, and the pendulum, the razor edge of destiny. Thus the condition of man bound on an island from which he can never hope to escape, surrounded by the waiting pit of hell, which must destroy him finally. And Cassandra and her husband, they both look at me like I'm crazy. And then Cassandra says, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> and that's literally how I got the job. And I knew that monologue because when I was in junior high school, we had a drama, you know, class assignment to do a monologue. And they wanted us to do like Shakespeare, gag me with a spoon. Uh, So I was trying to think of something that I could do that would seem, you know, like academia. And so I said, could I do Edgar Allan Poe? And they were like, yes, that sounds that sounds fine. And so I went home and I trans. I had, back in those days. It was before video cassettes. I recorded movies off the TV with reel-to-reel tapes. And I had a reel-to-reel tape of Pit and the Pendulum. <laughs> and I transcribed that monologue and learned it. And, of course, it's not Edgar Allan Poe words. It's The script was written by Richard Matheson, but I wasn't about to tell my teachers that. And I went in and just pretended like I was, you know, reciting Edgar Allan Poe's *The Vindulum*. And I got an A, and, and uh, it was, uh, and it's just stuck with me ever since. Well, it was, it came in very handy at that particular moment because they were, they were just absolutely astonished that I knew that, that I knew that much about, you know, the Vincent Price Poe movies. And but I really do, and uh, so. Um, we did that movie in Romania. It was the most fun I've ever had directing any movie. I've never laughed so hard. Cassandra is just the nicest, funniest person on the planet. We're still really, really good friends to this day. Um, we're actually, um, it hasn't even been announced yet, but we let's, let's just say in quotations, we might be um, the guests of a tour group uh, in 2022 going to Romania to look at um, Castle Dracula and do some other tour stuff. But uh, we might be going on that tour as guests and we might be showing Elmira's Haunted Hills and actually visiting one of the locations or two. Maybe, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) but anyway. It's, uh, it was just the most incredible film and um, we, I, I mentioned earlier that we tried to cast Christopher Lee as the Vincent Price character um, and he turned it down. We also approached Mick Jagger, if you can believe it and Richard Chamberlain um, who's a very good close friend of Cassandra because she was in one of his uh, Quatermain movies mm-hmm. and, um, but None of those worked out, and we ended up getting Richard O'Brien of Rocky Horror Picture fame, and he played Riff Raff. But what a lot of people don't realize is that he wrote Rocky Horror. I mean, he wrote the play. He wrote the music. He wrote the lyrics, He wrote the screenplay when they turned it into a movie. He is Mr. Rocky Horror. And he's also a huge Vincent Price fan, and he knew exactly what we were spoofing, and it just was the, it was a dream come true. It was probably better than anybody else who could have cast because he totally understood what we were spoofing. And uh, it was it was incredible. And you know, he's just a brilliant, brilliant comic actor and and has all of that sardonic grotesquery that was needed for the the role. And we also had Mary Shear, who had been a regular on Mad TV. And Mary Jo Smith, who was part of the Groundlings, where Cassandra developed her Elvira character, and where Paul Rubens developed his Pee Wee Herman character. And, um, and also, um, Scott Atkinson, who played Dr. Bradley Bradley, he was a good friend of mine um, and very, very, very sadly just passed away a few weeks ago. I'm very sorry to report. Um, but did a brilliant job as Dr. Bradley, and he. When I brought him in to audition for Cassandra, he read a scene in his sort of normal voice. Well, I had heard Scott at parties do a dead-on impression of George Sanders from All About Eve, and I I said to Scott, I said, try the scene again, but do it in your George Sanders voice and he took a minute and regrouped and then he did he read the scene as George Sanders and Cassandra and I got hysterical we we were laughing so hard it was just absolutely perfect for that character and that's what we had him do so he does that in a George Sanders voice now he turns out his character turns out to be a charlatan. and at the and at the climax we learn that he isn't this posh british upper crust person. He's actually a low-class Cockney. And so I told Scott, I said, you know, at that point, when, when it's revealed, you need to switch into a Cockney accent. And he said, what if I did Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins? <laughs> and he goes into this dead-on impression of Dick Van Dyke from Mary Poppins. And, and we were, again, just howling with laughter. It was so perfect. And he he just, he he was just, it was just great. It was just such a perfect, he was just perfect in every way for that character. and brought so much to it and it wasn't on the written page, you know, it was just, it was just him. And uh, so, and at any rate, um, it's a, it's a really special film. And because we were able to create all of the sets from the ground up, everything was built. We had only a few, exterior locations um most of it all takes place in these incredible castle interiors we had two completely different dungeons um i had told the production designer and had sent him you know the, the pope the corman pope price films and you know i said oh, you know we want to do it in this style and i said look at the pit in the pendulum sequence you'll see that they built part of the set and the slab and some of the walls, but in the big wide shot, they just got matte painters to do a matte painting, to expand the set out. And the production designer said, Oh, well we've got some great old school matte painters here in Romania. We'll, we'll get them and we'll do it just like that. And I said, perfect. Well, when I got over there, the production designer, who, by the way, his name is Radu Korcheva, he worked with me on the Oblivion movies. Um, in Romania, you know, a few years earlier. Anyway, he said, well, I've got good news and bad news. The bad news is that the all the mat, all the old school map painters have died. <laughs> <laughs> so that idea did not work out. But come with me. And he takes me to the sound stage and he opens the door, and we walk in to the pit and the pendulum stack that he has built full scale from the bottom of the pit to the upper... Um, Ceiling, this cavernous set that was as big as the James Bond sets that I'd seen at Pinewood Studios on *Man with the Golden Gun*. I mean, this was unbelievable. I literally broke into tears. I couldn't believe how beautiful and how elaborate and how humongous this set was. And they had put Hieronymus Bosch murals on the walls and just and this working pendulum and i mean it was unbelievable and you know we never could have afforded to do anything close to that if we had tried to build things like that in america it would just cost you know ten times the budget of our movie um so it was it was it was just magical and it was the last time that i really got to have a, a budget i mean the budget was only one point two million dollars I mean you know we're still talking incredibly low budget but it was the last time we had the, that I had the money in a budget to actually you know design and create and build the look of it from the ground up which I had done on uh, the Oblivion films which I had done most to a great degree on on um, Guilty as Charged and on Out There but um you know those days in the low budget world that I and that I sort of delve in are pretty much over. You know the films that I do nowadays. I do a lot of thrillers for Lifetime and Christmas movies for Hallmark. Those kinds of things. You know, it's a, the the budget only allows you to basically go rent existing locations, and you know, bring you know, you can change it up a little bit. You can bring in furnishings and that sort of thing, but you're not going to be able to paint the walls a particular color or anything like that, because these are existing locations that, you know, either homes that people live in or businesses that are closing for a few hours for us to shoot there, you know, or whatever. So there's only so much you can do. And uh, so it, it just, you know, when I think back to making Elvira's Haunted Hills that, you know, it was really like making an old Hollywood movie because of of having that artistic control over everything down you know from from the floor to the ceiling to every little every little thing in that movie was was something that we asked for and it was just just a, again a dream come true
0: now you, you you mentioned a lot of actors that were in the movie but you missed one of my favorite actors that's in the movie who's not physically there rob paulson
1: uh, rob paulson yes okay so all right so this is what happened we had um we had thought there, there's a there's a it's called the stable stud in the movie and it's supposed to be a hunky guy that elvira has the hot for and we thought when we were casting when we were casting it in America before we went over there, we thought, you know, oh, what about, like, Fabio? You know, wouldn't it be funny to have this, this romance novel model with long hair and, you know, chiseled body and everything be, you know, do this part? And we offered it to Fabio, and he didn't really get the humor of it and turned it down, and we were kind of like, eh, okay, but, you know, we wanted we we really wanted that look. We wanted the look of a romance novel um, painting. And it was you know, we wanted a guy with long hair and chiseled body. And we just thought, you know, okay, we're we're a little over budget in certain areas. We we really probably can't afford to bring another person in from Los Angeles. Let's just cast that role in Romania. Surely there's got to be a muscle guy there with long hair that will fit the part. So we get over to Romania. and we, we start having auditions and nobody's right. Um, no, first of all, hardly anybody had long hair. So then that meant we were going to have to have a wig. And I hate wigs, especially on guys because they always look like wigs. And unless you, you know, have a really, really expensive one, and we're not going to find that, um, you know, a Hollywood wig maker in Romania, and so it's going to look cheesy, and it's just not going to be right. And so we decided, you know, all right, we will only audition actors who have long hair. We don't we don't even want to bother with the others. So and then finally this guy um, comes in, Gabi Andernaki. And he's perfect in every way. He's got the long hair. He's got the body. He's gorgeous. He's a hunk. You know, we're all, we're all drooling. And then he starts to read the scene and he cannot speak English to save his life. And we couldn't understand a single word. And he, he was only fluent in Romanian and it was just not happening. We Tried to get him to speak the lines phonetically. It was just a nightmare. And then suddenly, I had this idea, and I turned to Cassandra and I said, "What if we just let him say all of his lines in Romanian, and we post dub an English dialogue with another actor, and we, but we purposely do it." badly like those you know italian hercules movies or you know whatever for the 50s and cassandra started to laugh and she was like oh my god do you think it could work and i was like i think it could be hilarious and but then we were a little worried we're like you know he has several scenes in the movie and is this going to be a joke that wears out, you know, is it going to be like a one joke thing that once you get the laugh, is it really going to continue to get laughs? But we were up against the wall and we were like, you know, we just, we have to take this chance that it'll work. And so we did and we cast him and he was fantastic and he did all his lines in Romanian and we couldn't wait to get into post-production back in America to replace the voice. And Cassandra knew Rob Paulson, who is a very famous um, character actor who does, you know, tons and tons of cartoon voices and all sorts of stuff. And in fact, Stephen, you may know some of his famous credits and you should fill those in now (laughs) because I I don't,
0: you know? You put me on the spot and and I'm I'm blanking. Okay,
1: never mind. (laughs) That's okay. That's okay. But, he, you know, if you look him up on IMDb, Rob Paulson, I mean, he's done a million, million voices. So he comes in to the ADR dubbing studio, and he just cracked us up doing all of the dialogue for this character. And he would purposely make, you know, it's it, like some of the lines would, would fit perfectly like as soon as the actor opened his mouth to the time he closed his mouth the line would fit perfectly but Rob was like no 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 you want it to like go on for another beat or two after he closed his mouth you know he just had so much fun with it where it just is absolutely ridiculous and when we watched the movie with audiences we were so relieved that a it got huge laughs But then it continued to get huge laughs every time he came on screen. So it wasn't just a one joke thing. People loved it so much that literally as soon as you'd see him, they would start laughing before he'd even open his mouth (laughs) because they were anticipating what was coming. And it was, uh, it was just a dream come true. You know, it was one of those risks that paid off beautifully. And it was so much due to Rob Paulson, you know, just giving it the absolute perfect voice. Now, while we had Rob there, there was another scene, two other scenes in the movie. In the very beginning, <clears throat> there's a there's an old guy, the landlord who uh, Elvira and her and Suzu, her French maid, um, have not paid for the night at this this inn, and so the landlord is kicking them out because they haven't paid. And he, they've got their room door locked and. The landlord uses an axe and, you know, knocks out a piece of the door and sticks his head in, just like Jack Nicholson in The The Shining, and he says, here's Johan, instead of here's Johnny. And so there's a little spoof of that. And the actor that we cast in that role was Romanian, and he, you know, wasn't quite giving it the the umps that we felt it needed. So we asked Rob Paulson to replace his voice. And so he did this old crotchety old man perfectly. And he was like, hey, here's Johan. And it was perfect. And so that always gets a big laugh there. And then um, at the very end of the film, the, we, we needed a, an, an American, someone who could speak English to play this gentleman in the coach when they're driving away. And he basically, you know, says to them, you know, well, you know, the castle, what castle? There hasn't been a castle here in 200 years, you know, or whatever. And the, um, so we asked Jerry Jackson, who was the choreographer for the musical sequence. And he'd also wrote the, the song that, that she sings, the, um, the Parisian, you know, um, I forget the name of the song, but, um, and he had come over to supervise all the choreography and everything. But he was there and he spoke English and we we're like, you know, you played this guy. So we put him in the coach and everything. Well, he had not really done much acting. And we also said to Rob, you know, why don't you take a look at this scene and maybe you can replace his voice and come up with something funny. And then I suddenly thought, And why don't you do it as Terry Thomas (laughs) and Rob Paulson knew exactly the voice. And so he replaced his voice with Terry Thomas. So between Scott Atkinson doing George Sanders and Dick Van Dyke and Rob Paulson doing Terry Thomas, you know, we had all these (laughs) these iconic voices or impressions of these iconic voices in the movie. And it, and it worked out great. Um,
0: When you asked me about Rob Paulson's credits, I knew he was in Ninja Turtles, and I couldn't remember which turtle. So I did a quick look up. It was Donatello. He'd been Donatello in the long ah. thing, and also he was Pinky and in Pinky in the brain.
1: Besides, there you go, besides Pinky.
0: hundreds of other credits, but I think those are the two big hundreds. ones that people would know.
1: Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it, it, anyway, I'm it just, was it was just magical
0: film. I'm just amazed like with voice actors, how they're able to like professional voice actors like himself that are able to do so many different voices, dialogue, I mean, all across the board and how they can keep track of them and do them over like, you know, different years later. And they just, it's, it's, it's just such a craft how they've how they're able to utilize their voice and do those things yeah. so well. And you were able to get one of the best ones in the game at that time. We were
1: so lucky. We were really lucky, and of course, you know, he did it for scale, or you know, or not what he would normally get either, because of his friendship with Cassandra, and uh, you know, it just couldn't have been better. I mean, it was it was just like having you know voiceover royalty, and and he just brought everything to life. You know, it was it was fantastic.
0: And and again, this this film I think is also available on Amazon Prime, and you know, th- th- uh,
1: at the moment, it's not. Um, but it's not the, all of the rights to the film have finally come back to Cassandra and she is to this year is the 20th anniversary and we, she's shopping it around and in the hopes of getting um, a deal to put it back out on Blu-ray because it's never come out on Blu-ray before. So we're kind of hoping that that might happen. So, well, you know, to news to follow. <laughs> well, hopefully
0: it would. I mean, it, there's been a lot of films that have gotten Blu-ray um, releases that I never fall would ever get a Blu-ray release. And I'll just say Dracula versus Frankenstein yeah. one. You know, it's uh, you know, Kill is another. I mean, is Haunted, you know, Hills. It's, it's got to be one. that has got to get a Blu-ray release.
1: Yeah. Oh, it, no question, and, and and hopefully that will happen.
0: Now, one of the things I wanted when I was doing research to do an interview of you and you know you and you have a lot of IMDb credits. I mean, a lot of credits. One that intrigued me for for the main reason because Lonnie Anderson was in it. My sister is so yeah. gay and you directed multiple yeah. episodes in its first season and I I just want to talk a little bit because that is a funny show.
1: It's a it's it's a comedy show called My Sister Is So Gay, and it was um, created uh, by Terry Sweeney, who also stars in it, and Lonnie Anderson plays uh, his mother, who's sort of a lush. And um, when we when we offered the part to Lonnie, and she read it and everything, she came back to us and she said, "Oh my God, I always wanted to play um, Pat from." fab you know the Joanna Lumley from absolutely fabulous <laughs> and she did, and uh, she said I've always wanted a part like that and so she was really excited to do this role and um and uh, anyway it was it was a really fun thing it, it was, when I say it was no budget I'm talking no budget it was really really tight budget and it was started out as like a um, uh, Webisodes for you know just on the internet, and we shot it at Terry's apartment over a couple of weekends, and you know split it up into episodes and stuff. And it, um, but it was it was just loads of fun, and I I got um, Tokie Jones to come and be in it, and um, Deborah Wilson from Mad TV. It's got it's just got a wonderful cast, and we did one season with six episodes, and then. Um, unfortunately, I was not available when the second season was um, was ready to go. And so a different director does season two. But there have been two seasons so far. And i uh, just really, really proud of it. And and Terry, um, Terry, I hope I said the name right. You said now, but Sweeney. It's, it's I think it's Sweeney. Ray, right? It's Ray. Yeah. I, I, I'm getting my Terry, my, Terry, my comic actor... Terry friends mixed up. Terry Ray, thank you. I'm glad we caught that. Um, Terry Ray is so funny. He actually played an extra in Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, when she's getting burned at the stake. He's one of the key extras of that sequence. And uh, anyway, he also created and starred in another comedy series that I directed called From Here On Out. That's, a, that's also got a really funny premise it's about a um, it's kind of like you know how 30 rock was was behind the scenes of a Saturday night Live kind of show being made at NBC well this series was a, a behind the scenes of a gay spy series being made for a gay TV network and it was all the all the behind the scenes sort of craziness going on and uh it was really a a fun series to do as well and um terry's just a a really talented writer and comic actor
0: oh and i I mean i know because that that series just watching it because he is the one where the straight man so to speak you know where um yeah which is kind of funny because it's, you know, <laughs> but it's, you know, <laughs> yeah, <'cause he's> <laughs> yeah. but you know what I mean? with the comedy part, everything, everybody is being so funny, right? And I think that's the hardest role because you got to yeah. give all the reactions to let everybody else have all the good line, you know, like the lines that people remember. But I think the hardest part is being the person that's giving that comedy that an extra push. And he does a wonderful job of it. And yeah, it, cast it, really does. it it's a, it's a labor of love, you can tell. And, and and Lonnie Anderson, if anybody's a Lonnie Anderson fan, if you're not watching this, then you're you're really missing Lonnie Anderson do something totally different than WKRP in Cincinnati where she is playing oh, yeah. the the opposite role, you know, type type thing. It's yeah wonderful. Oh,
1: and she just she just she just loved every second of it. It, it was it was it was really fun to work with her.
0: Now, you're not only, like we said, a director, producer, you know, and all that stuff. You're also a writer. And you've written, like <laughs> we, we already mentioned about with um, Little Shop of Horrors, issue epi- um, number 38, where you did the um, Frankenstein, the True Story. And, of course, um, the other magazine, was it? it?
1: We I did uh, the Big Dress to Chill article in Boots and Blood magazine. Yeah. <laughs> So, so I, I heard something I come back a, in the
0: feedback. It was like really weird. Uh, it was, it was something in your end?
1: Oh, I think it was a motorcycle. Okay. I think it was a motorcycle going that, that's why.
0: That's why I paused um, for a bit. I was like, what's that?
1: Okay. Yeah, sorry about that. Um, yeah, and I also did the big Dress to Kill article for Boobs and Blood magazine.
0: Which is issue number four.
1: Interview with, yeah, issue four, yeah. And then I did a um, uh, the, probably the most in-depth interview ever with Cassandra Peterson about Elvira for scream magazine number 36 and that's there are two scream magazines the British one spells scream like you would think scream is spelled s-c-r-e-a-m but the American scream magazine which is what this Elvira thing was for is spelled s-c-r-e-e-m so double e's and uh and I won the Rondo Award for Best Interview of the Year for for that Elvira interview, which I'm very proud of. And I also, completely off of genre, off genre, I did a biography book of mm-hmm. Kay Thompson called Kay Thompson from Funny Face to Eloise. It was published, got a huge publishing deal with Simon and Schuster, and was very big at the time. And ex- there was uh, you know big publicity and Vanity Fair magazine and everything. It was like, wow, this is, this is really um, hitting it big, big time.
0: Now for our audience but, um, members Dave that aren't familiar awesome. with her, for audience members that aren't familiar with her, what's a little bit, can you tell us a little bit about Kate Thompson so they have an idea?
1: She, she wrote all of the Eloise children's books about the little girl that lives at the Plaza Hotel, she starred in Funny Face with Audrey Hepburn and Fred Astaire, and basically stole the movie away from them. She's the magazine, the fashion magazine editor, and she sings the opening number called "Think Pink." And she was a big behind-the-scenes um, star maker. And she was at MGM. She coached and did all of the music arrangements and choral arrangements for all the big musicals and. She was the wind beneath the wings of Judy Garland, Frank Sinatra, Lena Horn. Her goddaughter was Liza Minnelli, and she guided Liza's whole later career after her mother, or Liza's mother, Judy Garland, passed away in '69. She discovered Andy Williams and had a 20 year affair with him and guided his whole um, launch of his solo career. Um, she had the biggest nightclub act in the history of nightclubs and was the highest paid. Um, She was, you know, signing million dollar contracts in 1950, uh, 10 years before Elizabeth Taylor made the cover of Life Magazine for signing a million dollar contract for Cleopatra. You know, Kay had been making that kind of money for a decade. Um, And she just was this sort of unsung hero that needed a book written about her. And I decided to do it.
0: (laughs) and and for those that like hollywood history and to learn more about behind the scenes and things like that this is a good book i uh, i feel for people to reach out and and read and enjoy because they're go- you're you're going to learn not just more about her but more about a lot of other things that were going on around that time and yeah. and i think it fleshes it, out it, things nicely
1: it really is a history of show business from from radio in the in the 30s you know right through the big studios with MGM and on into, you know, every decade. She's just kind of at the pulse of everything going on. And for, for genre fans, she was married. Um, one of her husbands was Bill Spear, who um, he produced these iconic radio shows like The Adventures of Sam Spade and Suspense, which was an incredible anthology show that, you know, had, the very first Ray Bradbury adaptations ever. And Kay was responsible for getting her husband to buy Ray Bradbury's short stories. I interviewed Ray Bradbury for the book and he talked about coming to their home and, and, uh, and Kay had read his stuff and she really, you know, championed him and promoted him to her husband to, to get her husband to buy his first, his first stories that were adapted. And, um, She also, remember, um, you know, Orson Welles had, uh, you know, quite a hoo-ha with War of the Worlds. Well, her husband had basically discovered Orson Welles and, and was working with him in radio doing voices and stuff and also used Agnes Moorhead and also used almost everybody that Orson Welles ended up. You, you know, forming the Mercury players from it was actually from Kay's husband sort of started all of them as, as a group and it evolved into the Mercury players. And, uh, and Kay was really close friends with Agnes Moorhead and that whole sort of group. And when Agnes Moorhead did the radio show, sorry, wrong number that became second only to war of the Worlds of being the most, um, the most horrific, Uh, Sort of seismic radio show where the climax of that, um, when you find out that that the killer's in the house, and the very last moment is Agnes Moorhead screaming because she's actually being killed, and this is not going to have a happy ending, which was incredibly unusual on an episode of Suspense. It just rocked, you know, it rocked the world. You know, it was like the water cooler moment for radio listeners back in those days. Well, guess who decided to have that sardonic ending? It was Kay Thompson. The original script had a happy ending where the police rushed in and saved her just in the nick of time. And Kay said, "Uh, uh-uh, uh, you gotta, you gotta really shock the audiences for once and have this surprising ending." And that was that was Kay Thompson's doing. Um, and you know Bernard Herman was writing the scores to all those episodes way back then. I mean, you know, so she's. She's, you know, rubbing elbows with all of these um, people, uh, genre, you know, genre people that we all know and love from from the stuff that, that you know, we follow really closely. So you're going to find all sorts of cool stuff and connections uh, in reading that book. Kay Thompson from Funny Face to Eloise.
0: Now, we're coming up to the one-year anniversary. If or It might be the one-year anniversary, but it'll depend on when this episode goes out. it probably be a little after the one-year anniversary. Of a book you wrote during the um, lockdown. <laughs> yes.
1: Okay, so when the lockdown happened, it, it, the you know in March of 2020, suddenly you couldn't get toilet paper anywhere, and I'm starting to get a little panicky because we were starting to run low on toilet paper, and I went to several grocery stores and couldn't get it, and I and finally this grocery store I like talking to the guy, the manager, and I'm like, you know, what do you have to do to get toilet paper? And he's like, well, listen, I can tell you there's a there's a shipment coming in after midnight tonight. And, you know, if you come back first thing in the morning, you'll be able to get some. You know, and I felt, I felt like I was doing a drug deal, you know. And <laughs> then he goes, but wait a minute, tomorrow, oh no, tomorrow is senior citizen day. We open an hour early and only senior citizens can come in here and they're going to wipe it out. And I said, well, wait a minute, what age do you have to be be a senior citizen? And he goes, well, you have to be 60 or older, so you're out of luck. And I go, well, <laughs> thank you for the compliment, but I'm over 60, so I'm going to be here. And I really am over 60, I'm 64. So I um, showed up the next morning at like 5 a.m. and got in there, got my toilet paper. And so that next day happened to be April 1st. April Fool's Day, and I was talking to my sister on the phone and telling her this story and getting hysterical over, you know, how what have our lives become, you know, we're like doing drug deals to get toilet paper. And I was laughing and she was laughing and I was like, you know what, this, this could be an, a, a humorous essay that I could post on Facebook. So I wrote it up that afternoon. I posted it on Facebook, got a huge response. People loved it. And then I thought, you know what? This could be a really funny children's book parody, like those little golden books that we all read as kids. And I know the perfect illustrator for it, Dan Gallagher. And I called up Dan and he said, Oh my God, it's been on my bucket list. I've always wanted to do a parody of a little golden book. Cause I was such a, a fan of those as, as a kid. And, by the way, I've just been laid off for my job because of the lockdown and I have a completely free slate. Yes, let's do it. And, and I said, well, we got to do it fast because it's, you know, there's an expiration date to this topic and, you know, we got to get it out of there. So he spent all of April doing the illustrations and we ended up, Publishing, I self-published through Amazon self-publishing division, uh, and we had it out on May nineteenth. So literally, in like five or six weeks, we had you know from the concept to publishing, we had it out, and um, and it's called Sam's Toilet Paper Taper, and it it was it was just so much fun. It was like this perfect. It was the perfect time. It was, it, it was the perfect subject. You know, I'm on the cover with a mat with a mask on, you know, it's just like everything about this pandemic is, is parodied, you know, in this, in this little book. And it's got all kinds of movie references. Um, and there's, you know, Carrie and sound of music and good, bad, and the ugly, and just all sorts of crazy stuff. I even, I, at one point I'm, talking about, I have to, you know, go to the grocery store, but I'm going to, you know, I wonder what cat suit I'm going to wear for this heist of getting toilet paper. And I'm trying on cat suits. And I told Dan, you got to put a little autographed picture of Julie Newmar as Catwoman down in, you know, the corner. And so we even have a little Julie Newmar homage. Um, anyway, it's, it's just so much fun. And the best part about it is... I, I'm donating all profits, 100% to the World Health Organization's um, COVID-19 Solidarity Response Fund. And it's, the book is only $10, and it's on Amazon. And you can get it in paperback or um, e-book. And, um, you know, I feel like every bathroom in the world needs to have one of these because it's the perfect reading material for the porcelain throne. <laughs>
0: And one of the things I love about that book is the Peter Laurie character. You know, oh, I'm
1: glad you mentioned
0: that. Just, you turn it, so, it's like, I think it's one of everybody's favorites. You get there and he's like, oh, that's Peter Laurie. Oh,
1: and, and of course. Peter Laurie. So, so that guy, that I, the, the manager the, in real life, the manager at the grocery store was sort of this colorful older guy. And I just thought when I'm telling Dan, I said, let's, let's. Cast Peter Lorre as that guy and then do a caricatures of Peter Lorre. And he loved that idea. So, so that's what we, that's what we have it there.
0: <laughs> and it's wonderful. And you've raised, you've raised a lot of money so far because I know Facebook, so you posted far, we, it every so we've often. We've
1: donated over, over $2,500 so far has been donated because of the sales of this book. I'm really, really proud of that. And, um, and I'll continue donating for as long as the book sells. And, you know, we get royalties every month from, from Amazon and it just goes right to world health organization.
0: Yeah. So, so listeners, it's like, it's, it's like Sam said, it's $10 on Amazon. The money goes directly to COVID, you know, help and you know, to the WHO organization, you know, to COVID. And we're still in the pandemic, you know, we're getting hopefully near yeah. the very end of, the pandemic you know and, and that kind of thing i think i think we're seeing the light at the end of the tunnel but we're still in the tunnel
1: <laughs> let's hope let's hope but this will be an, an amusing keepsake of this crazy time we've been through <laughs> and kids love it it's a, you know there's nothing it's it's um the book is irreverent and um and you know i'm openly gay in it there's a there's a shot of there's a cartoon of me and my husband and our two dogs in bed you know there's nothing risque about it but you know okay yes we're a gay couple Uh uh uh-oh you know some people might be offended by that but there's nothing um any there's nothing more offensive than you might find in an episode of the simpsons so um for for kids as long as you know if you feel like they're old enough to see the Simpsons, they're gonna then they're old enough to just read this book and and kids absolutely love it. And but it's but it's also written for adults as well on that level as well. And uh so, you know, it's it's good for pretty much all ages.
0: Yeah, and 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 it's 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 a it's the perfect bathroom book because it is a quick read. Yes, (laughs)
1: Yes, <laughs> it is perfect for the bathroom. It was timed out perfectly for for just that sort of thing.
0: <laughs> and 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 you know, and if somebody for some reason is sensitive to whatever reason that you brought up, then I just challenge you donate ten dollars to a cove to some type of um, charity that is helping with the COVID, and just do ten dollar donation that way. If you know for some reason you you don't you don't you don't think you want to buy the book, you could still help out.
1: Exactly. Exactly.
0: Which is the whole point. But, Sam, I've had a wonderful conversation with you so far. Is there anything you have coming? I know with the, the lockdown situation, it's hard to do anything. Anything coming out in the near future that you can talk I, about?
1: Well, I do have one other book. Of course. Um, that I did during during the uh, the shutdown. Now, this one, folks, is definitely for adults only. <laughs> it is a pretty freaking sexy book. It's called Orbgasm, and it's a. The subtitle of the book is a. Uh, let's see, what is it? A, a, erotic, sci-fi, pulp satiricon, and that pretty much describes it. It's a. It's a science fiction book about an orb that falls from outer space into the backyard of an actress who was in a James Bond movie. So she's a Bond girl, fictional, you know, of course. And uh, and she has cancer and exposure to the orb cures her cancer completely. And then she tries it on her gay best friend who has um, Parkinson's, early Parkinson's, like, you know, like Michael J. Fox had. And boom, he's cured. And they're like, oh, my God, this is this magical cure-all. What are we going to do? And suddenly the government is trying to confiscate it. And they, she and her gay best friend, hit the road, Selma and Louise style. And they are going to try to take this to her father, who has Alzheimer's, and get him before the, the government confiscate it and so it becomes this big chase this big exciting chase of them trying to get to her father and um but one of the side effects of this particular orb is that it makes people really horny, (laughs) and so um that leads all sorts of complications and interesting things along the way so anyway it's a pretty wild book i actually wrote this as a script for a Showtime movie Right after I did Out There Back in the 1990s And uh, It was going to be made It was in full development there And then the regime changed And the new regime came in And they wiped out all the projects And development And I put this script into a drawer And it's been sitting there for 25 years And during the shutdown I pulled this thing out And I said you know what It Cure's are on everyone's mind right now. Magical cure would be really nice to have and I think this is topical again. And uh so I wrote it into a novel and I could didn't have to worry about censorship with the sex scenes and so I just kinda went whole hog and it's pretty pretty wild. But it's a but it's not just um, you know, an erotic book. It's really, really exciting. And it has all kinds of movie references. There's a there's Bride of Frankenstein stuff going on, and a Dr. Pretoria's character, and uh, all kinds of cool stuff. So um, it's it's a fun read. And just like Sam's Toilet Paper Caper, all of the profits, one hundred percent, are going to the World Health Organization's COVID nineteen fund. And it's twelve ninety five or something like that on Amazon. Um, it's hard to find because erotic. Books are not in their general search, so you have to get creative. You have to go to the book section and then type it in, um, and it'll and it'll pop right up. It's Orb O R B G A S M, by Sam Irvin, and, and it should pop up. And uh, if you're having trouble because they they don't make it easy to find, it's kind of annoying. Um, you can go onto my Facebook, and I have links. I, I promote it regularly, and I have links on my Facebook to, to get that Amazon link. But um, it's um, it's definitely there. They just kind of hide it, but it's in, available in paperback and ebook.
0: And then that was the next thing I was going to bring up. How could people follow you to see what's coming out? You just said follow you on Facebook, Sam Irvin. You know?
1: Yeah, face, Facebook for sure. I'm also on Instagram, but um, I like to sometimes write long. Uh, anecdotes like the Christopher Lee herve Village story or whatever. And so you know on Instagram you, they give you a limited amount of space to write stuff so, but on Facebook is kind of unlimited and that's where I that's that's more my wheelhouse so Facebook for sure.
0: And for those, for those who are wondering, Sam's been sharing off and on um, different stuff that he did back when he did his um, fanzines. And um, with some of the different actors showing the pictures and, and talking about the story, how he got a chance to interview them and all those things. And it's uh, it's just amazing. Yeah,
1: it's been fun to revisit them, actually. It's a, you know, I haven't reread those interviews in so many years. And I'm probably, you know, people are asking me, you know, are you, are you going to, you know, re-put these into a book or something? And I have been really thinking about doing that exact thing is to collect all of those interviews that I did and put them in a book.
0: That would be nice because it it is part of history, you know, and and I think that's the you know it's for for people to be able to find out and all the stuff, especially at that time in the early seventies, you know, where it you know it's it's like a snapshot of what was going on in the in the Hammer yeah character in the Hammer actors world, you know. and that. And that well, some people
1: say they want me to. Some people are saying you should just reprint the entire fanzines that you did and I'm like no freaking way because uh, half of the issues were me reviewing horror movies and oh my god some of the opinions that I had back then I'm so embarrassed by and and my writing style it was has, was not honed yet and I just I cannot bring myself to to republish some of that <laughs> so yeah, it'll just be the interview. <laughs> well,
0: I'll be happy with the interviews and the pictures. I mean, it's that that to me is you know because that's, I mean, it is interesting to read reviews from things back in the day, but um, I think I think more that the the historical aspect is what we we're, we're, we're like Christopher Lee, Peter Cushing, Ingrid Pitt, you know, all the ones. I mean, there, there's a lot more. That you interviewed yeah. during that time because I'm like I'm seeing yeah, this- Donald
1: Donald Pleasant, um, Terrence Fisher, Michael Carreras, and Sir James Carreras from who were the heads of Hammer and Freddie Francis and oh other actors like Ralph Bates and Shane Bryant, Madeline Smith, Linda Hayden, uh, oh my lord, everybody, you know it, it was just I I can't, I can't believe on those two short trips that I was able to squeeze in as many people as I did.
0: But again, I want to thank you for having this great conversation with me. And we, I think we covered a lot of your work. We, we only like hit a fraction of the amount of stuff that you've done. But I, think it, <laughs> I think it's a good fraction. Yeah. Not a, not a, a pretty good sliver. <laughs> Definitely. And like I said, for, for listeners, a lot of these movies are available on prime or you can buy them, you know, um, uh, hopefully the Delvira one will come out soon on Blu-ray, you know, so people can get it and, and be able to um, watch it and enjoy it. But yeah, anyways, thank, we hope so. thank you, Sam, for joining me. And
1: you're welcome. I'm, I, I love, I love any show you're doing. I'm happy to come on.
0: Oh, thank you. <laughs> And listeners, um, join us next episode where we're either going to be doing a movie review decided by the cast of a die or another interview. Otherwise, I hope everybody's having a good time staying safe. See you next time.